This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. We can sacrifice ourselves or sacrifice others, but sacrifice requires faith. But if we have this faith, we can move forward and sacrifice, knowing there are no fixed points in the future, only potentialities. I think of my friend Yamamoto Sensei, being able to learn and teach English while his father was forced to hide his light under a bushel. One generation, the door closed. The next generation, the door opened. There may be moments of doom awaiting us, but there may be moments of grace too. Art points us towards potentialities too. We make it for one reason, hoping for it to be perceived or received one way, but it may result in something different and unexpected. Think Vincent van Gogh. At that moment, we may feel forsaken, but that's when the work bursts forth with a new and unexpected life, a life of its own that gives life to others. Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. Read any good books lately? I have, but they're not the kind of books you're likely to find on the bestseller list or on a shelf at an airport bookstore. Not because they're boring, but because they speak the truth. Not because they're dumb, but because they're intelligent. And not because they're bad, but because they're brave. Brave, truthful, intelligent books? Certainly such novelties must only be found in nonfiction. But that's the best part. They're not. Yes, there are authors today writing fiction as gripping, urgent, and real as anything in literature from the past, only updated for our modern age. And that's why you won't find those books on a bookstore shelf or bestseller list, because works like that which have the ability to inspire, educate, and transform are dangerous in many people's eyes because they might remind us of what we've lost. Which is why I'm grateful to have met my guest this week. His name is M.T. White and is the author of the essential new fiction book, Content. It's a thrilling story that many of you may be able to relate to, about a young man living overseas who finds his way into an edgy online community where all is not what it seems, and soon the real world takes on a character to match. It's an examination about what happens when you take appealing but bad ideas to the extreme, how we can all get lost in our screens, kick around more dangerous notions than we're willing to own up to, and what the consequences of that might be in our connected age. All that, and it's fun to read too. Because Matt is an excellent author who understands not just his material, but the philosophy and artistry behind it, which you'll see from our conversation. In our talk, we discuss the origins of content, where the main character Jason came from, and how the story took shape over time. Matt's personal journey as a writer, and how interests in previous eras of his life fused together into his newest work. The difference between art and entertainment, enchantment and spectacle, as demonstrated by the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and finally, the essential and often forgotten role the arts have to play in bringing us together, along with other questions of philosophy. It seems in many ways that men these days compete to see how many books they've read, sometimes up to 50 or more a year. I've read my fair share, that's for sure. 
but content, that one stuck with me. And once you listen to Matt, I think you'll understand why. Big thanks to our mutual friend Jameson for bringing content and Matt into my life, along with many other incredible things. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, the author of content, M.T. White. Hey, Matt, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, great, great. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. I've been looking forward to talking to you since I read your book, Content. And uh, I, I was really impressed at the breadth and depth of subjects that you covered and the message of the book itself. And one of the, one of the things that I love about having a podcast is that I get to discover cool stuff and I get to tell all these people like, hey, go check out this cool stuff and this cool guy who did it. So um, I'm, I'm thrilled to talk to you and to get to expose you and your thoughts and your writing to more people. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I love talking about myself because <laughs> I, care, I care what you think. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> there it is. And for those of you who haven't read the book, you will understand that joke soon. <laughs> uh, so, well, let's, let's get started with, um, with your background because I think it's important for people to know who you are separate from the character of the book. Because I think uh, like many people who've read the book, I kind of mistook like, oh, is this, is this a you know, semi-autobiographical in some way? Or is, this the, is the author the voice of the main character? But that's not the case at all. So let's talk about <laughs> you first and separate you from the book. Oh, oh boy, where to start? I was, born, <laughs> I was born on a rainy day and it was cloudy. No, I... I um, <laughs> yeah, in the book, uh, you know, Jason, the, the, the narrator is Jason Riddle Ubercats. And I'll, I'll wrap this into as part of my background, but, you know, in the book, he's, you know, he's half Jewish and he's half, uh, he's half, you know, German is what he tells people from, and he's from Washington, San Diego. We actually don't really know where he's from, Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, I'm not that at all. I'm, I was, I was born in Texas and my parents from a basically working class, like, I guess for lack of a better word, redneck background. Um, uh, but my, uh, my dad was an engineer and uh, he built power plants for a living, and uh, we moved around a lot. So I grew up, uh, I grew up in Canada, grew up in New Zealand, and uh, went back to Texas when my father was unemployed at the age of twelve. That was a culture shock, mm. if there ever was one. And because uh, Texas at that time was not the boom state that it is now, it was very poor. There was a lot of poverty because the, of the Texas oil bust. And it was just, uh, it was just, you know, stark relief. And the only reason I mentioned that is because uh, I felt very rootless because I had no, I had no sense of place. Yes, I'm from Texas, but I, you know, I didn't really know the place until I was 12. And uh, I think that plays into, I think a lot of great literature, I think exile is, is a theme mm-hmm. in a lot of, in a lot of great literature. Many authors feel a sense of exile, like James Joyce or, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, even Dostoevsky or, or uh, Tolstoy, and uh, and so I think I think that's a part of it. And uh, the only reason I'm the only reason I mention that is because I think that's you know, as Brett Easton Ellis said, a lot of authors have a central trauma. I think that was my central trauma that uh, that just kind of defines defines just going from like just a very comfortably suburban middle class background back to Texas in in basically living out in the country and uh, at a poverty level, not not like awful poverty, but a form of, but, you know, it was very, you know, poor working class, uh, you know, lower middle-class life. That was quite a shock, you know, for a boy who's 12, who's going through, he's going through puberty and everything. Like that's like the worst time of life to, to go yeah. through a transition like that. Yeah. Um, 
So anyway, uh, but that's, and ironically enough, even though when I was a little boy, I would, uh, I would, you know, had quite an imagination and I would you know, walk around the backyard dreaming up things, you know, that's in junior high is when I really seriously got started in art. I started as a comic book artist because I was really into comic books. And then I moved. Um, and then in high school, they had vocational education and we got very heavy into video production. That's what I started. And that gave me a direction because I was actually quite directionless before that. Like I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a comic book artist mm-hmm. or something. Because at the time, you know, that was, that, was a, that was a viable profession. You know, people like Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld, they were making millions of dollars. Oh yeah, it was a big thing at the time. Yeah, yeah, it was a big thing in the late, in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll be a comic book artist, but there's no outlet for that right now. But I was going to, my dad was always a geek. So I've, I'd been going to science fiction conventions since I was a boy. And um, so you got to meet artists and stuff like that. And that was always cool. But then I got, you know, I got really into anime and I got really into, mm-hmm. I got really into uh, just video production. It all, it all kind of ran together. And so like me and my friends, we started making videos and like the very, that was right when the internet was bursting. But also like, you know, so you started editing, you started making, uh, you know, anime. We started making anime montage videos for our local convention and stuff. And um, yeah, so tying this all in, I mean, I was also, I was also going to, I started going to church when I was, when we moved back to Texas. And so I started doing video production through, through my church just to give me something to do. And, um, you know, I, I got into college and then I thought that I needed to be a missionary. And I, of course, and I, yeah, right. And then I, uh, I mean, there, there's, there's a whole lot, but I ended up going to Taiwan for two months on a mission trip and wonderful country, by the way, no apologies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and, um, beautiful country. I've been there also. Yes. Yes. And, uh, I lived in a uh, Kaohsiung in the Southern part of Taiwan, which is a nice place. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I taught English at a Chinese church. So I was getting very, very exposed to Asian uh, to Chinese culture, but I was taking Japanese in college and I'd always liked anime. And so then after, after college, I went, I lived in Japan, uh, for two years teaching English through, uh, the jet program. And I just uh, kind of put my artistic, uh, pretensions behind me at that point, even though when I was in Japan, I would write a little, but then after I came back to the U S and after, especially after my daughter was born, I've, I felt I needed to do something and I tried script writing and I even, you know, I got, I got some producers interested, but it's like, unless you live in LA, you can't get it done. You have to live in LA. And I wasn't going to live in LA. Right. And, um, that, that's my fault, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I, I mean, they, but oh, well. And then, uh, so I then turned, I was like, I always, I always like novels and I just started to turn to novel writing. Cause so that's what I could say. I consider myself an artist, like a multimedia artist. Like I don't like to define myself as a novelist or anything like that, but I do love novels and I am focusing on novel writing at, at the moment or just writing in general. Cause I've always thought, ironically enough, I always thought writing was my weakest, my weakest skill. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, because like in English, I got terrible grades and people would always like criticize my, Criticized my writing because, like, uh, I was like writing for a friend's website, like movie reviews in college. He goes, we need to talk about your use of commas. Because <laughs> 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 even to this day, I think people say like, you overuse commas, bro. So, um, 
but you know, that's, that's just part of it. It's just like developing a skill and then just getting good and good, getting better and better at it. But I do remember, I do remember this, 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 cause I think this is important. Not, I'm not trying to lose the thread, but I remember I was reading a lot of stuff. And, uh, when I was in college and when I was in, uh, living in Japan, I was reading a lot of novels, but not like literature, literature. I was just reading, uh, I was just reading stuff like Tom Clancy and, you know, as a boy, I really liked Michael Crichton. So I was reading anything I could, you know, just escapist stuff. Yeah, of course. And then, but, and I was watching a lot of Kung Fu movies and stuff. But then I realized that I wasn't getting the, the thrills that I was used to getting. I'd become numb to it all. Like mm-hmm. there was no thrill to it anymore. And I just remember a light bulb went off in my head. And this happens to a lot of people. I just said, I need to read a novel, but I need to read something literate. And I went to the Half Price Books um, on Westheimer in Houston, and I bought a copy of, of Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. And the only reason I chose that one is because it's the only liter- literary book I knew of, because I remember watching Entertainment Tonight as a boy, mm-hmm. and, they, and they had a feature on the movie Bonfire of the Vanities, Brian De Palma's version with Tom Hanks and Bruce Willis. I said, this is a literary book. And... <laughs> And I read it and I was blown away. Wow. And like, and because Tom Wolfe's writing style is so eclectic, it's an amazing, he, he has a very vibrant writing style. It's just, uh, and I mean, vibrant in the best sort of the word, not the, 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 the shitty sense of the word now. <laughs> okay. And, um, but he has this, just this writing style that just pops and it's alive. And like, he goes into the psychology of the characters and stuff like that. And I, I was just amazed. I was, just the world that he created. He didn't, he wasn't concerned with plot. He was just create, interested in presenting the world of New York in the late 1980s mm-hmm. and kind of like the, all the racial tensions and everything that was, to, that was brewing there. And the, the, to, the subject matter was so controversial that it couldn't be adapted into a movie. They had to basically um, go in a different direction for the movie because his, his subject matter was too hot to, to put into a, a major motion picture. And um, it upset everybody around him. It upset everybody in New York. Um, so, because uh, he he was merciless to everyone, he he pulled no punches. And uh, and so I think it was there was something fateful about reading that book. So me being like an obsessive nerd, I read everything that Tom Wolfe wrote. I just guzzled it up. And then he started listing. I read an article by him. And he started listing authors who he liked. And so I started reading those. And then of course. You start getting into the Russians like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, and Chekhov and all them. And, you know, then that sends you down a, a wonderful rabbit hole of literature. And so then I, and, and then I started writing when I was writing, I, I completely ignored it. Naturally. I uh, wrote a novel called the down to shield, which I'm proud of, but it was very much a by the numbers uh, thriller, crime thriller, mm-hmm. you know, where I tried to do all the things, match all the beats, you know, hero's journey, blah, 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 blah. And I mean, and I, I did everything that I thought was right. Like I thought like, this is the best genre novel that I can write. And, um, at least at the time. And I, you know, did the, did the things that a good writer would do. They would submit it to publishing houses and everything. So I submitted it to agents. Nobody was interested. Mm -hmm. And I went through another identity crisis because I'd written two escapist, like mystery crime fillers. Nobody cared about. 
And I thought, but like, don't they see my talent? Don't they see how good I am? You know, maybe I'm just being like a, a millennial. Maybe I'm just being a narcissist. And it upset me. Sure. And I was just like, what am I going to do? Like this, I was like, I'm like, I just felt hopeless. And, you know, because I thought I was doing everything right. And then I sat down, this is around 2015-ish. I sat down on my computer and I said, Matt, you just need to write. And so I just started writing and it just came out naturally. And I was just like ripping on everybody. I was like, you know, uh, just throwing the middle finger at everything. And, and I was just like, and it just felt so liberating. And I, once again, another word that's completely been denigrated. I sound like some woman discovering her womanhood or something. <laughs> How Matt got her groove back. Yeah, yeah, Matt, yeah, exactly. But it felt liberating because he's just like, you're just writing and you just don't give a fuck. And it's, I was writing and it just felt wonderful. And then as I started writing, I'm like, who, who's talking here? Is this me or is this someone else? Wow. And I was like, this might be a book. Interesting. I was like, you know, and then I thought, you know, there was this character in this mystery novel about a redneck detective who goes to Japan that I wrote called Kansai Cowboy. And while he was there, his kind of his partner who kind of guided him through Japan and basically dispensed all the Japan facts was, was, a, was a kid named Jason Rudel Ubercats. Oh, because, and I thought, what if it's Jason? And what if he didn't like the way he was portrayed in Kansai Cowboy? And what if he's actually not what we think he is? And then I was like, and then he starts taking over. And so I thought, okay, this is, this is my... The, the, this this is the novel, and so I thought it was going to be kind of a stream of consciousness type of type of story. And then, like right right when I like came up with this idea, I kind of stopped because then the the Trump movement happened, and I got heavily involved in that. Um, and I started you know meeting people uh, online. Uh, very, and I just started going to that down the rabbit hole. Like you know, you start like with Trump, and then uh, and then you start meeting people, and like you go more and more down the reactionary rabbit hole. And I just, you know, I'm a very curious person. I consider myself an open-minded person. So I went down that rabbit hole and I, I got involved to the point I was, you know, I was friends with, uh, I was friends with Jason Kessler who organized the Charlottesville rally. And I, I'm not going to say anything bad about it. But then like Charlottesville happened and the weekend that it happened, I also had a, a, an issue with my, in my family. And I, I almost had a nervous breakdown. I was like, I was just like shocked about like what was going on. I felt like, you know, that's what happens. That's what an existential crisis is. Your world collapses, your idea of it. And then you have to figure out how you're going to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And like your, your identity of yourself that you thought that you, that you knew is called into question. And that's what happened. And then I realized I have to go back to that story and I have to put in because I'd written the opening, a version of the opening of content, um, you know, in 2015, the opening, and then, but I'm like, I have to. So I said, I have, to, but now I have to incorporate everything that I've just experienced, and I have to put that into a novel because there is no one documenting this. There is no one who is going to present this fairly. There is no one who is going to present this in a raw, truthful way. Because most stuff in mainstream media is um, is very sneering, stuck up, it's snooty, it's uh, high minded, it's uh, you know snobby. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, we're this is going to be like 
this is going to be like Celine. This is going to be in the moment. This is going to present things. And it's going to be, and I was like, I have to present this truthfully. And whatever happens, happens. But it's like, I felt myself as a, I felt the, I've always felt this overwhelming duty as an artist. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe it's just growing up in the church, but just, I felt a duty that I had to do it. And so I wrote it and it took, it took a long time, but um, I wrote it. And that's, that's what content, that's what content became because I met several people like Jason as well, you know, and um, like Jason Kessler, you mean, or like Jason Rudel? Oh, just like Jason Rudel, Uber and Jason Kessler is not his, that's just pure coincidence that it's two people named Jason, pure, pure, pure coincidence. And, uh, but yeah, it's just, I met a lot of people like Jason Rudel, Uber and, you know, obviously, you know, that, that throws, you know, I'm, you know, that a part of me is in there as well. So, but, um, so he, Jason is me and isn't me mm-hmm. is what I, is what I tell people, but it's just, uh, it's like, I have to be, I have to be truthful. And that's, that's what, uh, you know, and, and sometimes telling the truth, uh, uh to quote George Orwell, cause everybody quotes it, but you know, <laughs> sometimes that becomes a revolutionary act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that was an outstanding intro and there's <laughs> yeah you probably won't think so but like i can look at that and i can see a whole bunch of different places to um to dive in okay uh, and, and which is which is really cool and i think i think where i want to start real quick is so the 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 pivotal moment that the, the it david foster wallace who said that, that we're all there's all some sort of trauma that we're through is that the quote uh, like, no brady stanellis just said there was brady central Stinellis. trauma central, central trauma yeah there's one there was one of the other was when you moved from New Zealand back to Texas. And yeah, from Canada, from Canada. To oh, Texas. Canada back from Texas. Okay. And, and you sort of, that sort of cold splash of water back into a, back into a very different, uh, very different kind of world than you had been living in. And what's, what's interesting is you also, you sort of replicate that in content with sort of like being thrown immediately into this environment of Japan, which you, I've been to Japan and been to some of the places in the book. And so it was like, it was, it was very vivid for me. I think that's really interesting that that's like immediately right into the craziness and the, and the overwhelm of, of Japan and the pace. So is that, are those two things kind of reflective, the sort of fish out of water feeling? Were you trying to create that in the book? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yes. Yeah. I, I had to be, um, because I, I don't like, um, I, I didn't like how stories like they take so long to build things up and everything like that. And I just like, I want to throw people, I want to throw people into, into the thick of it. Um, George Lucas, I think one of the big influences in a way was star Wars. Cause George Lucas said that when he, when he would watch Japanese movies, like, you know, uh, Kurosawa movies, which were a big influence on him, you just assumed everything like it, you, cause Japanese people know who, the samurai were they they knew who a lot of these people were but if you're an american viewer seeing like the seven samurai just going into a cult you're like what the fuck is going on like who are these people what's going on right and it's completely foreign but you're thrown into the foreignness and you have to deal with it and that's the feeling that he wanted to create with star wars he wanted to create a lived in assumption with uh, the world of it and you know the first star wars is very formidable i think as a film it deserves all its accolades i mean it's one of the most influential movies to come out, whether rightly or wrongly. I mean, it's, but I think, I, I think Lucas lost his artistic impulse, but the, but that first one was, was excellent. And um, the, but, I, but I, that's kind of the feeling I wanted to create as well. It's like, I wanted to, I just wanted to throw, 
throw everybody in there. And I guess maybe it goes into that uh, Martin Heidegger's, you know, uh, idea of thrownness of like, as people, he believes we're thrown into the world and then we have to learn how to deal with it. And that's where a lot of the existential, existential angst starts. And I don't know if I'm not the biggest fan of Heidegger, but I think there's something to that. So I think every, I think a lot of great art starts with people being thrown into a place, you know, and then having to, trying to figure things out. I, well, I, I, that was one of those powerful aspects of the book for me was that like, I was recommended, um, re- recommended by our mutual friend, uh, Jameson, who has great, yeah. he, he has great taste in everything. And, uh, and right, it was right after, um, right after January 20th, when, when we, um, had a new president allegedly and, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and suddenly this chill kind of passed over the entire internet for maybe a week or two where it's like, yeah. We all suddenly have to be very careful about what we say. They're watching. It's that they were probably watching before and they're watching yeah. after. Nothing really fundamentally changed, but our attitude changed towards it. And, uh, and, you know, at the same time, there was this kind of rising tide of people asking questions and shit posting and, and stuff like that. And so Jameson's like, we all need to read this book, you know, read this book right away. And so, okay, I listened to what Jane, we have a book club for a group of our friends. Um, we had just, I forget what we were. We, oh, we had just read uh, Bronze Age Mindset by Bronze mm-hmm. Age Pervert. We had just finished that, which, you know, has its own perspective on, on things. And so it was just right into, right into content. And I remember when I opened up the book, it, there was this feeling of like, what is, what is going on here? Like, what is, what is happening in this story? It was very much the feeling of being thrown into, uh, thrown into Japan, thrown into Jason's world thrown into his mind thrown into his taste so and really just having to sort it all out and and what i really what i i found uh, personally i found it really challenging at first to get through the first 50 or 100 or so pages just trying to orient myself but as i made my way through the book sort of trusting in the hooks that you would put in through the through the story whether it be the interactions with uh, David Fincher or whether I care what you think and what that tantalizing thing and all the different details in the book I found that as I worked my way through that feeling of having been thrown into the world that it really paid off and and that's and I, I wonder I'm not myself a novelist but it must be very difficult to be a novelist in the environment today where it's like people seem to want things kind of spoon fed to them yes. more than ever before. Like Dostoevsky, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, here's a great example, Shakespeare, right? Like I do poetry yeah. for men on my podcast. Shakespeare used to be for the common people. People used yeah. to go watch Shakespeare as their version of entertainment. And now Shakespeare is this kind of high minded, you know, I'd rather listen to Cardi B kind of, kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy and yet you still want to create something engaging. So I wonder if you could speak about that from your position as a, well, as a novelist today. Well, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad you Brent wrote that up. I, I feel a little trepidation about admitting this, but I, I, I should just go ahead and say it. And that, that was actually the intent when I wrote it. I wanted the novel to kind of be a journey from chaos into order. Oh, interesting. Okay. I feel and, that. And the, um, because at the beginning, in a way, Jason is actually very smug and he acts like he knows everything, but he's in a state of chaos. And then at the very end, he's in a state of order, but he actually doesn't know anything. And so, and the, and he kind of admits to that. Yep. yep and yep. I thought that, I, th- I thought, well, that's, that's the dichotomy that we deal with. But usually the, um, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's the fear of admitting that you don't know anything. Mm, interesting. And that's when, and my, 
my, my friend, a philo- uh, Croatian philosopher, uh, Branko Malic, uh, I, I guess I can call him my friend, I correspond with him, but mm-hmm. he, he said the difference between classical philosophy and modern philosophy is modern philosophy, like, like Heidegger is, the question is, why is there something, why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there existence instead of nothing? But he says the classical philosophical, the class, classical philosophy is summed up in is, why does the world work? Why is the world the way it is? And that's what all classical philosophers started from that point. And I think that's, that's kind of where content kind of ends. It's like asking, why is the world like mm-hmm. it is? And try to come in, try and just come to grips with that. And, um, the, and so that was, and, the, it, and I, I'm very happy you said that about the, uh, that you felt, you felt a strong guiding hand because we, we watch there's times when you watch movies or read a book and you're like, you feel chaos, but you also feel like there's an artistry here. There's, there is a guiding hand. Like this person is like this, like this is making me uncomfortable, but this person knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like you, you can feel like there's an intent behind it. Mm-hmm. And the, the, and, and like, and usually that's done through style. And a lot of times, you know, style is something that I've written about, but style is something that gets, it's not very, it's not stressed a lot anymore. These days they stress more story structure and things like that. But I think style is very important because throughout the, throughout, no matter what's going on in the story or whatever you're reading, you're like, this person is in control and they, their sense of style is their proof of control. It's their proof of authority. Um, and that's, and that's what I wanted to, and that, that's, and that, that's what I wanted. I wanted people to feel like, my God, the things that are being said here are just are like are batshit crazy, but I'm going to keep going. I'm going to follow this guy because I, I want to know what, what ends up happening. I mean, uh, you know, when my wife read my first book, she, she said, your book is disgusting. She actually said that. I mean, that was a real big blow. But she kept reading. I'm like, why are you reading it? She goes, well, I want to see how it ended. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, that's... You know, so that, that's, that's what I want to, that's what I want to create. You know, it's like people, like, that's what happened with Quentin Tarantino when he made Reservoir Dogs, like Harvey Weinstein's then wife. They, they, they with the, have you seen Reservoir Dogs? Yeah. The, okay. No. Of course you have, right? Yeah. So <laughs> and that scene with the ear cutting, Harvey Weinstein's wife ran out of the movie theater and went to the restroom, threw up. And then, and then, and her was like, oh my God, this movie, it's just, we can't have this. But then her and her friend, they came back to the theater. And she said, we want to see how the film ended, mm-hmm. you know, but because they, they saw a, a sure artistic hand, like even though there's stuff that makes people uncomfortable, there's still a sure hand, mm-hmm. you know, behind, behind the madness. And um, I think, I think that's what we want in life in a way. We want to see there's a sure hand, like there's a craziness to life sometimes, things happening. But, you know, that's why we look to God or we, because we want to make sure there's a sure hand there. It's like, yes, there's chaos. Yes, there's madness. But is there is there something behind it? Is there a reason for it? Oh man, I, well, there's a couple different ways I could take that. I want to. <laughs> uh, well, no, I, I want to get into the, the philosophical, theological argument of that, and I also want to yeah. talk about the artistic side of that as well. And I think we'll work our way into theology. Let's do that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I I love the I love that you pointed that out because I don't think I could have articulated what is it that's keeping me bound to this work. And that's something that I've been experiencing a lot lately with a lot of books that are, um, that are, that are self-published that are absolutely, that are absolutely brilliant, 
that are incredibly challenging, whether it be linguistically or philosophically or stylistically or something. They're they're challenging. They're challenging reads, you know, especially and not just by um, contemporary standards of content, but also, uh, and I mean that like in the in the lowercase c sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But also just in, in terms of like, there's something about it that's really, that's really pushing on something in me, right? In, yeah. in some sense. And so I've been struggling with this idea, like, what is it that's keeping me in this work? And, and there's an experience that I had many years ago. I went through a phase where I was obsessed with reading science fiction, like classic science fiction. Sure. And like, I never really got into like the hyper modern science fiction. Mm-hmm. But I just, I wanted to understand the genre and totality. Like, and I was just super interested. And I remember I read this book, it was called like Hammer Fall or something like that. And it's about like this post-apocalyptic movie where a meteor has struck the earth. And, you know, it's like, it's like Mad Max in kind of California. Right. And the whole arc of the book is like, is all about, um, the as I recall, the protagonist, the group of the protagonists, and trying to seize a power plant, a functioning either nuclear or coal power plant from from some other bad group of people. And so that's the whole. How are they going to seize this power plant? And the book was just fantastically boring. It was just terrible. <laughs> but I was so used to reading science fiction and being like, it's gonna, there's going to be a payoff. There's going to be a payoff. And I have this visceral memory of like the pages are the last 50 pages are ticking down and I'm waiting for something interesting to happen, waiting. Like, it's coming. It's coming. And the, I read the last page and there was just nothing. And I just felt completely betrayed <laughs> by the book. And I was, it's the worst book I've ever read. And so I have, the, I have that experience where I just like force myself to slog through there will yeah. be something positive on the other side versus these other books that are actually like pushing back on me in a way, but it's like, no, no, I'm going to fight through this because I feel like I'm getting something from it. And these are two very different experiences. And that's the feeling that I have with content. Not that I'm pushing through because like, oh, I just got to see what happens and the chance that it'll pay off. But like, there's a sense in my mind that there's something deeper going on here that 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 is keeping me intrigued. Like what's happening? And I, I love that feeling in a book and I've never been able to yeah, so do I. That it's, yeah. Yeah, it's a stylist. It's a stylistic thing. It's a feeling that there's a a larger wisdom behind the whole thing. That if you just are patient enough, it'll pay off, and it, it will sincerely pay off in the end. Versus like, um, uh, versus like some sort of like bet or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's funny you mention that because I, I grew up. Like I said, my dad was a was an engineer, and he loved science fiction, and like he had bookshelves full of science fiction mm-hmm. books. And I tried, you know, and I read I read a lot. I mean, I read Robert Heinlein. I liked Philip K. Dick because at least Philip K. Dick was trying to be literary, and but he just didn't have the time or the money to, I think, fully develop that. And um, mm-hmm. you know, Blade Runner was one of my one of my key artistic aesthetic awakening experiences watching Blade Runner. And um, mm-hmm. but uh, but yeah, you felt that with uh, reading science fiction. It's like you know, because a lot of these guys who who write it are kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, they're nerds, and sure. they don't they don't they have kind of like that very Cartesian mathematical mindset, like, well, A, B, A needs to go into B and C into D. And, um, but, and, and in my opinion, science fiction has gotten progressively worse Mm -hmm. because they've progressively moved away from the literary canon. Like someone like say Philip K. Dick or um, Robert Heinlein, they were raised on Kipling. They were raised on um, traditional, like uh, very, you know, the classical authors, they were raised on Shakespeare. But now a lot of the newer science fiction authors, they don't have that. They're just, they've just been raised on science fiction. Yes. Like, like someone like, like uh, J.R. Tolkien, you can't even say that the Lord of the Rings is fantasy. It's like almost in a genre of itself because 
he was right because he was he was a scholar at Oxford mm-hmm. in class in in Norse not Norse uh, Scandinavian mythology. Wow. Like he was just entrenched in that, and um, even like and but the Lord of the Rings is basically the closest thing to a classical literate experience that a lot of science fiction fantasy fans have. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yep. And, and that's what, and you even see it on like literary Twitter. They go, you can't say who the greatest author is, but I'll tell you, J.R. Tolkien's the greatest author, <laughs> you know? And like, and I personally have never read Lord of the Rings. I can't get through the goddamn book. And, but, but I admire Tolkien as a person. I admire him as a writer. I admire him as someone who loved myth and someone who wanted to create his own myth. And, uh, and the fact that he was very well respected as a, as a, as, as a, as a writer. And I might actually revisit the Lord of the Rings and stuff, but, um, cause my son's reading it. He, I can make a recommendation by the way. Uh, you, you recommendation, you recommend it? Yeah. I, 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 uh, Lord of the Rings, but I, I recommend the similar, uh, the, the Silmarillion is the Silmarillion is, is the Silmarillion. Yeah. There, there, there are bits in the Silmarillion that just absolutely are utterly transcendent. And I think yeah. Silmar- Silmarillion, there's lots of challenging aspects about it, particularly around like names. There's like a, an encyclopedia of names and they all sound the same, the same because, you know, he's, he's such a master of languages, but the feeling completing some of the stories of Silmarillion is just absolute, like, like jaw dropping brilliance, particularly the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, okay. Beautiful story. And then the, the story of how the middle earth world is created like there's the, there's the creation myth of middle earth is what opens the silmarillion it's right it's a center, it's basically just his theology which is which is okay. cool. so maybe that may be an easier way in because the lord of the rings if you've if you've seen the movies going yeah. to the books expecting the books to be like the movies it's they're not at all like the movies Wait, and it's funny okay it's funny you mentioned that because um i was reading because I, I i enjoyed the movies uh, when I was in college and I was reading a book because I, I like reading making of movie books and I was reading a book about the making of Lord of the Rings and I came across this very curious passage where you know uh, Peter Jackson um, he was not a fan of Lord of the Rings like he liked it but he wasn't like a diehard fan or anything sure. he was more into like monster movies like King Kong and stuff and, but it was more his uh, his life partner or whatever she is and um, they were reading Lord of the Rings and they said that um, they had taken Robert McKee's story class God forbid. And they said, and there was this very curious quote. They go, Tolkien doesn't understand story structure. That's what they said. Okay. They, it, because they were very frustrated in trying to craft the Lord of the Rings into a screenplay using Robert McKee's formula. And so what they were, it became like the bed of procrustes. They tried to basically make Tolkien fit their, make Tolkien square fit their circle. And, um, it, it, and, and then they made that comment, Tolkien doesn't understand story structure. It's like, well, maybe you don't understand literature. <laughs> Boom. But yeah, you know, that, and that, that, I don't know, that was a real light bulb just reading like, oh my God. It's like, how, how could you say that about the man? I mean, like this, this is, this story resonates with people for a reason. And, and it's not because of he doesn't understand something. It's probably because you don't understand something. And then listening to my son talk to me about the movies, he's like, this is nothing like the book, you know? And, um, and he was, no way, yeah. and he, and he was going, cause like the, the movie, they just kind of turned it into a uh, conventional action fantasy movie. Right. Yes. So in a way, yeah. in a way yes. I, yeah. I, 
I will say I, I have studied some of the mythological uh, in myth is in many ways a reflection of psychology, a mythological dimensions of the Lord of the Rings. And I, I do think from that perspective, they did a really good job. And naturally in translating from um, from print to visual and from and from Oxford to Hollywood, there's a, a bit is going to get lost in translation, but sure. I, there are a lot of things about it. Like, I think that might be the best possible mainstream movie that could be movies that could be made from that book. Like, I, I, yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why it makes them timeless is that like, we have this intuitive sense that it's still a Hollywood movie, but if we're going to get a Hollywood movie, this is the out of an Oxford, Oxford scholars, you know, uh, uh, whatever you might call it, like exploration of themes. Let's say it's the best film, the best films that we're going to possibly get out of it. And they're great films to boot, which I think that that makes them pretty special. And yeah. I also hear what you're saying that like, they're not going to fully get what he's doing. Yeah. And in the visuals, I was always just visually stimulated by the movie, at least back then, maybe not now, necessarily now, but the, I like, like all the costumes and the sword design and the, uh, you know, just like kind of like how they, you know, how different parts of Middle Earth are kind of representations of different parts of uh, the ancient world on Earth, mm-hmm. on our Earth. Mm-hmm. And I thought like the, the design is, I, I thought it was all like very, uh, it, was, it was very uh, visually exciting. And, but, you know, Peter Jackson's a very visually exciting director. He's very kinetic. Yeah. And, and um, so I found that to be, you know, very... Uh, you know, very just just watching like the two towers, just like the motion of like the horses and stuff like that, and I, I was just kind of just feeling very thrilled. I just remember I was really stressed out right before I went to go see the two towers on Christmas Eve, and then just seeing the um, the grandness of it, I just like just kind of relaxed my spirit. And I that's what good art does, I think. It's just like oh, and uh, it's nice. it just the, the visual stimulation, you know. I love um, that you said that. Yeah, that, that art relaxes your spirit. Because, yeah. because there's, and I think people, at, and we're going to go completely off-roading now. I hope you're okay with that. Yeah, but no I, problem. I think people have, have absolutely lost that sense that art can be a thing that your spirit can relax into because there's so little actual art being made today. It's absolutely all, all propaganda. And propaganda yeah. creates the sense of tension because you're being lectured, not yep. invited in. And to yeah. experience great films, great uh, albums, you know, great architecture, uh, and and great books, great poetry, whatever form of art you like, uh, is to relax into the care of the artist and to trust. Whereas now it's like it feels like these producers gr- put their hands on your shoulders and grab you and then start shouting in your face. And I think yeah. we're, we're all lesser for that. Yeah, and I think I think on the flip side of that. I don't want to get too political. I think there's also the capitalist mindset that has kind hmm. of influenced this as well in the sense that the viewer has the, the customer is always right type of attitude. And so rather than saying to the artist, take me into your world, they're saying, how can you make me happy? How can you entertain me? Interesting. And it becomes like a bitchy woman saying, what, what have you done for me lately? Hmm. And, and so rather than sitting in the movie thinking, okay, Take me into your world. Even though, and like, I think that's also the popular, I think that's the problem with home video. I think like medium is the messenger. When you went to a movie theater, you're there. You're, 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 you're at the mercy of what's playing on the screen. You can't pause it. You can go to the bathroom and get some popcorn. <laughs> yeah. But you can't pause it. It's going to run at its own time. You're at its mercy. If you don't like it, you can walk out. Like 
like Harvey Weinstein's wife did to go throw up. But um, you're at the mercy of the filmmaker Um, because you've already paid your money. So you might as well just finish the movie. But with home video, uh, streaming, whatever, they're at your mercy. They're at you hitting fast forward. And like, that's why Netflix has that, that, that plus that, that you have a speed up. You can watch something sped up, which I just, that, that they should be fucking arrested for that. And uh, like, why would you want to watch a movie sped up? And, but, and then like they're, the, the, I read in the, the new trend is to create ambient television where basically there are no plot points. It's just the movie just kind of operates in the, as background noise. Or, and I'm just like, what? That sucks. Yeah. And it's just, well, so the person can be comfortable as they, as the movie just kind of plays in the background. It's like, and I'm just like, give me a break. And that's, that's no longer, and that, that's once again, like, let's talk about me. It's all about me. You have to, you have to entertain me. And like that creates attention because then you're like waiting for the payoff. You're, you're demanding that they give you a payoff. Um, you know, and he, the, like, I remember it was very telling this millennial on Twitter back on my first Twitter account <laughs> said that he didn't like um, Sergio Leone's the good, the bad, and the, no, not the good, the bad, the once upon a time in the West. Cause I just said, this is a great Western. I said, Shakespeare wrote the best Italian love story. A British guy wrote the best Italian love story. Maybe an Italian made the best Western. Mm-hmm. He goes, no, he didn't. It's terrible. He goes, that movie's long. It's boring. And I couldn't get behind any of the characters. And, and I almost tweeted back at him. You're watching the movie too much like a capitalist. It's like, what if they are horrible characters? Mm-hmm. Let's follow them. Let's see if we're invested in them. Mm-hmm. Let's try to see a little bit part of their world. I mean, like, let's sacrifice our narcissism for a minute and try to go, like, let's subdue part of our world and let's try to go into their world. Let's see, let's think, let's see things from their perspective. You know, it's like uh, Quentin Tarantino, when he talked about when he first saw the, the Japanese movie of The Street Fighter, you go like you know the main character, uh, like kills a guy. Then he then then somebody couldn't pay their debt, so he takes his sister and sells him into prostitution. Sells her into prostitution. He goes, "This guy's the hero." And but you know it's like you're but when you're in the movie theater, you're you're at the mercy of the filmmaker. It's like okay, let's see what happens. Let's see let's see where this goes. You know, and um, so if anything, the modern technology has created a closed mindedness. Almost it's a closed world where we're almost closed in on ourselves. Like, you know, where people have to suit us rather than, uh, rather than trying to open ourselves and see what these, what, what, what's on offer, you know? So I, I wonder, and you've probably observed this as well, many people are feeling that there's a, that society is kind of cleaving in half, right? Yeah. Well, because I, I look at, I look at that and, you know, you know, I've watched a number of, let's say Marvel movies, because there's the, it's the sure. trend and some of them are good and some of them are bad, but you know. Yeah. They're, they're, for the most part, like uh, the best of them are pretty, are pretty vapidly enjoyable. Yes. You know what yes. I mean? Yeah, I would agree with that. They're vapidly enjoyable. That's a, that's a perfect description. Sweet. So, but, but I find myself now in the arts that I'm looking to appreciate wanting more than is currently on offer. So yes. I'm digging into classic literature. I've lis- I'm listening to more classical music or music without words, or I'm reading heavier, um, I'm reading heavier books in listening to, to podcasts or, or watching videos about philosophy or art criticism or something like that. And so in addition to people who I think are moving in the direction of just kind of ambiently entertain me, right? 
or, yeah. or you know, and I'm starting to think of um, Fahrenheit 451, the walls of entertainment that people live inside. And, and there's people moving in that direction, but I feel like that there are people moving in a completely different direction. And, and I think I would count myself as one of them. It's like, no, no, like make it difficult on me, turn out the difficulty, but you better know what you're doing. And so like, I think about your book and I think about Roman McClay's Sanction, especially because Sanction is a book that's actively trying to kick your ass for the first like 20 to 30% of the book. The book is actively mm-hmm. like, close this book. You suck. You're not qualified to read this book, you know, but there's also the stylistic component of like, there's something going on behind the scenes. And so I think there's a lot of similarities, but I think that there are people that are, in addition to wanting less, there are people that are also wanting more. And, right. you know, it's like, I don't know where to point people to go find that contemporaneously. I can point people plenty of places back in time, like here's Chekhov, here's Dostoevsky, here's Charles Dixon's and Shakespeare and, you know, Chaucer, how far back do you want to go? But what's happened like today, it's exciting to discover your work because you're actually trying to be challenging and you're doing it well. Well, thank you. Thank you. That, you know, that was part, I mean, I won't lie. That was part of the intent when I, when I wrote content is that people, I figured, I, I saw that when you're like on literary Twitter and stuff, there's a lot of writing, there's a lot of reading for entertainment. But I personally feel reading for entertainment, what I mean like pure, raw entertainment, is going to die with baby boomers because there's easier ways to be entertained now, like watching a movie, yeah. like, um, um, you know, just watching TikTok videos. <laughs> um, um, and I feel, I felt, okay, reading for entertainment, that's dead. So, um, it may not be completely dead, but it's going to, the more baby boomers die, the more it's going to, the quicker it's going to fall off because the boomers are the only ones I know. This isn't an insult to them, but they're the only ones I know, like my dad, like my mom, they're the only ones who read for entertainment now, it seems. Mm-hmm. So uh, if people are going to find entertainment. They're going to find it in manga, comic books, uh, or TikTok, uh, stuff like that. So I figured, okay, that's dead, but reading for, for lack of a better word, education. Mm-hmm. Or like reading for enrichment, especially that's why men read. I hate this whole thing. Well, more women read than men. Well, it's like eh, maybe, maybe. I think men just read, happen to read authors that are dead. I don't think they because most contemporary fiction is all geared towards chicks. It's all chick lit. And like I think a majority of best. You know, uh, I was talking to a girl at a coffee shop, and she she said she likes to read. I'm like, what do you like to read? She goes, oh, whatever's on the bestseller list. Oh, great. And, and I'm like, oh God, it's like, uh, I, I won't let you read content. <laughs> yeah, no, um, she would, it would blow her mind up. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, her favorite books like uh, The Alchemist and God Help Us. And, but so this, so that is turning inward. It's turning inwards towards women and the type of books that women like and, you know, whatever. So, but I'm a man. And so I'm thinking like, how do I, how do I reach men? I think men like to read, men like to read for information now. Like when they read, they're going to read a, you know, how to, uh, you know, how to, how to make, how to build your own business, how to, you know, level up, whatever. Homesteading. Say what? Homesteading is very popular. Yeah. Homesteading. Yeah. Survivalism, all that type of stuff. And I was like, they, but you know, I don't, I don't want to get into sexual dynamics, but being is a very much a very big part of masculinity and that yeah. like how to like be like just the nature of being back to the philosophical question. Why is the world the way it is? And, you know, that's why we, uh, you know, that's why we still read Dostoevsky. That's why we still read Tolstoy and, and all of them. So I thought let's, I'm, that's the type of book I like to read. 
So I'm going to write that type of book. And hopefully there are people that are going to want to discover that. They're going to people, and they might not be as many as those who want to read Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey. But the people that do read it, those are the type of people I want to talk to. And those are the type of people I want reading my books. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It makes, it, it makes total sense. It makes total yeah. sense. And, and, and uh, you know, I don't, without getting into sexual dynamics, I, I think, I think for, for men who are listening and men in general, that they need to begin reframing the reasons why they read. Because I, I think, I, I know what you mean about boomers reading for entertainment. And, and I, I grew up, I was also reading a lot of Tom Clancy and Michael Crichton. And, and these were books that were, they didn't have messages or I didn't detect messages in them, but they were super entertaining in this highly technical way. You know, yes. like it was, he created, like these authors created this whole universe of like gadgets and stuff and, and quote unquote manly shit to kind of get lost in, in addition to yes. have some pretty competent writing and storytelling abilities. Okay, that's one style of reading. But there's another style of reading separate from that, which is I'm going to read nonfiction for for informational content purposes how can, exactly how yeah. can make a better thing okay i want to propose that we need to begin uh, adopting a third way of reading is how can i read to improve myself not in some i'm going to pick up some information that makes me better kind of way but this is going to make me smarter sharper broader in thought etc and it's actually going to stretch my mind but i'm 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 defining mind in a broader sense because when you read a truly great book like when you read you know the brothers karamazov or something like that like something more than just the mind as in the intellect stretches the the spirit yes. the heart stretches as well and it expands it's like wow you really got to take this in or reading shakespeare or something like that or or pick your favorite classic author it that process needs to be gone through it's a fundamentally an evolutionary process and you're right it makes sense that people would stop reading for entertainment because that is a difficult process it requires attention it requires intention and it's very hard like i joke sometimes joke sometimes that like i had to relearn how to read not yes. that I, not that i forgot how to you know parse you know squiggles on a page into into sounds in my head not that i forgot how to do that but how to sit down with a book a physical print book and read and and engage with it and absorb it and really take it in and not be distracted. That's reading, right? Yes. I, forgot, I had to relearn how to do that. And I think every, there's so much in our society that's dragging us away from being able to engage with, with, with a written word in that way. And we have to yeah. fight our way back to it. And to do that, we have to lift, you know, we have to lift as heavy books as we possibly can for our own benefit as beings, because yes. the, we're, we're sliding down the hill, you know, when I say yeah. we, I mean collectively sliding yeah. down the hill in the other direction. I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's, that's something that I think is almost, thankfully, like you mentioned with like Roman McClay and stuff. Thankfully, I, I was about to say it's getting irretrievably lost, but I don't think it is. I think we've, we're all kind of recognizing it. And so we're kind of cor- course correcting. So when I was... Uh, when I was in college, you know, a lot of people, they shit on college now, but actually for me, college was actually a very fateful experience. Mm. Um, but I took a science fiction class in college and the author was, I mean, the, the, the professor was actually a Russian, was a Russian, was, was very much a, Rus- a Russophile. His wife was Russian. He spoke Russian and, and everything. So he made us, he made us read um, Yevgeny Zamyatin's We, which is uh, basically the novel that Orwell ripped off for 1984. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, and also what Aldous Huxley 
was very influenced by as well. So he made us read We, but We is way more poetic than either Huxley or Orwell. And um, he then, uh, but he started talking about how in Russia, the foreign literature was the dialogue. And the, rather than say normal political discourse, we have Ben Shapiro talking about facts, don't care about your feelings and all that type of stuff. People would read, um, they would read Turgenev. They would read, um, they would read uh, the guy who wrote, I forgot the author's name, but he, I think he wrote a book called What Must Be Done or What Is To Be Done, which is a very, it's a book that we don't really know a lot about in the West, but that's what influenced the communists in, in Russia. Um, that, that was like a very, I mean, when Lenin read that book, it changed his life. And Dostoevsky read What Is To Be Done and found it so appalling that he wrote Notes From Underground. And so we have two, I mean, one of the great books of world literature was written as a form of dialogue with another, with another political book. And Tolstoy was so horrified by, by uh, what is to be done that he wrote his own. I, I, it wasn't War and Peace that he wrote, but he wrote, um, even though that was important, he, 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 was, he, he found it awful as well. <laughs> and so he, he you know, tried to answer to it. But literature was the form of dialogue. And I think you know, that's the, mm, the, the okay. it, it was the form, it was the dialogue, okay? And the thing is, it's a more powerful form of dialogue. Because in the West, you know, since the, I don't want to blame Protestants, but since at least Descartes and Newton, we've, we've kind of started splitting the consciousness either into flighty artistry or, you know, by the numbers uh, calculation. And, um, and so you have that Cartesian sense. Whereas like in the Islamic world, mathematicians would also read poetry to balance their mathematical mind. Yep. Like that's what it, and what, when you, and this is something that we're losing because, you know, we're told that, um, you know, as the, uh, as kind of like neoliberals try to take over all the institutions, they're, try, they're trying to, they're, they're kind of like putting in a very utilitarian worldview, but there's something very holistic about the arts. Like I remember I was going through, I was going through, through an issue in my life and I read, like I, I read Bonfire of the Vanities and it helped me understand like Houston, which I was living in, which was also very multi, which is the most international and diverse city in, in America. And it helped me understand that world by reading Bonfire of the Vanities. And I was going through an issue in my life and I read Jay McInerney's story of my life. It helped me understand the mind of a certain woman. Not reading a book like, this is how women think, but this is a book, you see the, you see the characters interacting in a world. A world is created. You see them interacting and you can immediately say, yes, I understand this behavior. I saw that. And so now you have, you have grasped something on a spiritual and a level at the heart. It has gone through your brain, but now has gone directly to your soul. Yes. And you say, yes, this is my experience. Yes, I get this. Mm-hmm. And that is the important function of art. And that's something that we've completely losing because now we've taken, we've, we're following that Cartesian way of thinking. Well, movies are just for entertainment or books are just for entertainment. But there used to be a more holistic version like Shakespeare, like you said, were for the common people. But Shakespeare was... He had patronage from the royal court because they knew that his plays built a world. Mm-hmm. And it also built a world which, which explained the, the world order as basically as the king or queen ordained by God. They are the sovereign, like a play like Macbeth. The, the, the king at the time of Macbeth was King James, you know, who we have the King James Bible named after. But his... his 
ancestor in Macbeth is the hero. Mm-hmm. And people, but, and people, so rather than a work, and I, I am not being reductionist. I'm not calling Macbeth a work of political propaganda. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I would never, ever say that about Shakespeare. But Macbeth serves that purpose of strengthening the people's idea of the king, of King James, because they see that his ancestor was a just king and that he took care of evil. And so, but they didn't see it by just reading pamphlets saying, King James is a great guy. They, they, they saw, they would see a play and they're taken into the world and they see the evil of Macbeth, but then they see the righteousness of, is it Macduff, I think his name is? I think so. it, I've read that one yeah. in a while. Yeah, so, but they see the evil of Macbeth and they see the righteousness of, Mac, of Macduff. And it's not propaganda at all because Macbeth is the main character. And Macbeth is flawed, and you identify with him. Mm-hmm. You say, "This could be me." And so, something, something deeper, something more, you know, something more supernatural is going on in the story. And that's something we've completely lost. I remember I saw Kevin Smith of all, of all people, and I loved Clerks when I was, right. I, was yeah. in I loved Clerks. Yeah. He tweeted, "You know, people know about some biblical story a thousand years from now." They're going to know when Captain America picked up Thor's hammer. I'm like, Amazing. no, they are. No, they are not. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to do everything in my fucking power to make sure that doesn't happen. Right. You know? Um, so uh, considering that, you know, like my kids have uh, completely forgotten about Avengers Endgame, that tells me that, that that's not going to be the case. I pray it is. But, but, but because because like a movie like Avengers Endgame is just that it's pure entertainment. It's not taking us into any world. It's not take, I mean, it's, it's, you have like 20, you have $200 million worth of computer graphics, but you have absolutely no enchantment at all. Right. You know, and, um, point. That's a great, you you have no, you have no sense of wonder. You're just kind of like bombarded with imagery, just overloaded with, with imagery. And, um, um, whereas if you like see a play or if you, or if you read a novel, um, or, or just watch a movie that's, you know, just, that, that's trying to, you know, just trying to represent the world. I mean, cause that's what, that's what great art does is it tries to like, you can never make a carbon copy of the world. It's just too raw. I mean, it's impossible, but you can try to represent the world, which is what our brain tries to do. Right. That's what the right side of the brain does is it tries to interpret and act like an ambassador. When you see when you see movies are that do that, you're you you feel a level of transcendence because you also feel a level of connection. Even if it's like um, sometimes in the particular, you you get you get something that's actually very um, universal. Like when you watch a movie by Yasujiro Ozu, you know his movies are very 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 Japanese, the most Japanese. But when you watch them, you say like, oh, you know, I I know people that act like that, or I've experienced that, and you see in that particularity. You, you get a sense of common bond. Whereas now, because they're trying to appeal to like China or the biggest audience possible, you get this universality in the film or the book, but you have no sense of the particular. You feel completely alienated. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're like, this is not me. That is not who I am. Like, I don't understand. Like this, you might as well just be watching a movie made by aliens. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, you can't, you know, um, you know, because like, Something like, like we were talking about Lord of the Rings. Like, even though that was geared towards the universal, it was actually still very particular because like, they're using like Norse design. They're using costume design of like the, uh, of the Vikings or they're using uh, 
you know, medieval, uh, you know, it's kind of like a hodgepodge of things. And you, and you get a sense of, okay, this is somewhat, this is somewhat familiar, but it's familiar enough that, you know, I, I can take a leap of faith into the fantastic, you know, but if you just like, when you see like the Avengers, you see Captain America acting the way he does or Iron Man, you're like, who what the fuck acts like this? I don't know anybody right. who behaves like this. And like, you just feel alienated. No, I, I know what you mean. I told like, I want to comment on that Kevin Smith quote about a thousand. Okay. <laughs> well, before I dive into what you're saying, because I think it's really important. It's like, that's so dumb. Like what happened yeah. to Kevin Smith? He used to be smart. Like I saw yeah. that scene in the, in, in, uh, in, in, is it infinity? No, it was end game. It was end game. Yeah. And it like, it didn't land for me. Like there are other like dudes in the audience, like cheering. It's like, okay, so big deal. You know what I mean? Like you need yeah. to have watched the entire, you know, for 50 hours or a hundred hours of Marvel movies to understand why that's significant versus like, versus cause it doesn't, it didn't make sense without hours of other context and even then it's like it's empty it's like congratulations a, a fictional character who who is two-dimensional at best like captain yes. not a three-dimensional character picks up a hammer from another character who is two-dimensional at best you know fighting yes. a villain who was at least interesting and in like kind of three-dimensional in uh, infinity yes. war right and then an endgame had returned to being one-dimensional in like this cgi kind of battle like it's the most like how can how could like maybe in a moment of, of tweet enthusiasm the ultimate comic book fanboy had us had us had a splooge moment but like yeah you can't as a storyteller which kevin smith i guess used to be you can't actually can you actually believe that like a thousand years from now like let's look at what let's look at what really resonated from a thousand years ago and you know yeah. anything empty it was things of substance and meaning and, and transcendence are the, yeah. this is just it's a moment of spectacle and i think to, to your point we're losing sight of the difference well, many people are losing sight of the difference between substance and spectacle and absolutely because so many of the storytelling engines of our culture, which would be movies and television and and novels, and we we were talking about science fiction. I completely agree with you that contemporary science fiction is crap because it lost any sense of substance and became about spectacle, it became about technology and whiz bang possibilities, and lost its grounding in what does it mean to be human, and instead started exploring all these you know really entertaining novel ideas about what we can do with technology. But it's like, where's the heart in this? Same yeah. with Endgame. It's like, where's the where's the truly universal human heart in this? And it's all being replaced with like what we can wow our eyes with versus yeah. what can actually move our, our hearts and spirits. And it's yeah. and, I, and I think it's a I think it's a form of betrayal by the storytellers and in the in the industries of our age to deprive right. us of that. And I yeah, and, and there's very shallow connection that people say will say, well, like, well, the Odyssey is just a fantasy movie, and uh -huh. you know the. And like, you know, Ulysses is just a superhero. And it's like, kill yourself. That is not, that, that is not the case. I mean, these, the Homer is not Stan Lee. Yes. Okay? Or rather, sorry, Stan Lee is not Homer. Right. And I mean, even Joseph Campbell made such a, an, a cockheaded statement when he said that like, you know, George Lucas is the Homer of our time. It's like, bro, no, he isn't. Bro. <laughs> bro. <And> like, <laughs> um, Homer. You. <laughs> what, say what? Love you, Joe, but bro. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Homer, Homer is Homer. Homer is the Homer of his time. And his, his story, you know, his, yeah. his poetry, the way he wrote it, his poetry, his, um, everything about him is why 
he resonates. It's not just the story of the Odyssey and not just the story of the Iliad, but you know how they're structured and how they're, you know, how they're lamented. But that's a very modern problem because, like Joseph de Meister, when he was writing actually against democracy and uh, the Enlightenment, he pointed out how after the French Revolution, they um, they reinstated the Olympics after the French Revolution. They had an Olympiad. He goes. But they understand the Olympics complete. They're putting on an, a sporting contest completely out of context. He goes, are there going to be any, he goes, in the Greek period, the Olympics started with a huge sacrifice to the gods. Mm. And, it, and it was a very spiritual endeavor. It, it, it was a state endeavor, but it was a spiritual endeavor. It was all one. And, a very, and it was very holistic. And he goes, was there any offering to the gods when the, when the, when the French, uh, you know, did had their Olympics? He goes, no, there wasn't. <laughs> and his point was, is that the alignment, and we do this now, is like they're trying to take classical ideas that they thought had been kind of subverted by Christianity. And then we're going to bring them back because now we're enlightened. But they, they did them completely stripped of all, of all meaning and context. And then like now we have the Olympics now where it's all about steroid scandals and just, you oh, know, um, endorsement deals and, um, you know, getting prostitutes for Olympic committee members. And yeah. They, um, and, and, but that's what you see now. It's like people, they, they can, they can say with complete, with no irony, George Lucas is the Homer of our time because they don't understand who Homer was. They don't understand. They, they don't, they say they might understand the Odyssey, but they don't understand it. And, um, and Kevin Smith can make comments like that because they don't understand the important, like, why myth, why myth, why, um, why, like, even biblical stories, why those things are important. So they just completely rip it out of its context. I mean, they rip it out of their context, so they're not aware of the context to yeah. begin with, right? Like, it's, yeah. it's just a profound lack of perspective that would lead you to say that George Lucas is the Homer of our time. It's like, whoa, 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 S- slow down there. Hold on just yeah. a second. You know, yeah, it, you could, it, it, maybe he's the equivalent, like our equivalent of Homer, you know, which is a different statement, which makes more of a statement about us than it does about Homer, you know, or George yeah. Lucas really, but like, whoa there. Yeah, yeah. And, and with Kevin Smith, Kevin Smith should know better. I mean, he grew up, he went to Catholic school as a kid, I mean, he grew up in the Catholic in Catholic schools, um, where the, which is a fairly classical education, or as, as a classically you're gonna get, I believe. And um, of course, he liked comic books and everything. But um, him saying a comment like that, I think, is almost like a prostration before the altar of of neoliberal entertainment hegemony. Yes. That's what it is. Yes, that's. I mean, he's basically that's who he's swearing his allegiance to by yeah. making by making such a shallow statement like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I that's that was actually my read on it as well. You expressed it far more eloquently than I could have, but that was, <laughs> that was my read on it as well. It's it's sort of it's sort of um, forget about the past. Forget that the past had anything anything important to teach us about anything ever. Several yeah. connections with with. Uh, a deep and and rich and more complicated complex notion of what it means to be a human. You know, we are living in an ahistorical age. Forget about everything that came before. We're we're blazing into some new idealized uh, utopia. Yes. You know? Yes. And and uh, and here are, and okay okay. So I'll go with you. 
Kevin or whoever's pump, you know, public pumping that idea. Show me, show me the products of this new, this new brave new era that we're going into. If the best that you've got is Captain America lifting Thor's hammer, like, yes. <laughs> okay, buddy, <laughs> right. go sit down. Well, the, the adults are talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's like when my when my son was reading the Iliad, I was like, "Who's your favorite character in the Iliad?" He goes, "Well, I love, I love." Uh, uh, Achilles. And also Achilles had a friend and um, I forgot his name. And uh, he goes, say what? Patroclus? Maybe, maybe. Yeah. He goes, but he goes, he was very inspired by like the great feats they would do. Sure. You know, and it's just, there, there's something inspired when you read about it. You're like, oh my God, look, look at what they're doing. Like all the, like all the men they would kill and stuff like that. And the, the great feats that they would have during the battle. And, um, uh, and, and like, you, you don't have anything like that. And I mean, it's all just numbing. Like, I mean, the action scenes are cool, but it's very, very numbing because like you don't, you aren't inspired by, by the great feats that they do by watching them. You know, uh, you can get inspired by watching Jackie Chan or um, mm-hmm. uh, Jet Li because you see their bodies moving. You see their, 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 their movement and their choreography is a thing to behold, but you don't see that with, with all the computer graphics and all that. Well, it's like it's like what people said about Mad Max Fury Road. It's like the reason why people leaving leaving aside the massive piece of propaganda that, that film was. I've never seen it. I haven't seen oh, it. Well, I love Mad Max, the originals, but I haven't seen seen that oh, one. You know, it's got Tom Hardy and allegedly right. about Mad Max, but he's kind of a secondary character in his own story for Furiosa, Charlize Theron's character. So the whole thing going on there. But that aside, you know what really succeeded about that movie was that they did that all with mostly practical effects. And you can yeah. feel it. It's like, no, we actually went out to the desert in, in whatever, Tunisia or Australia, wherever they shot it, and we blew these things up. Fucking yeah. awesome. You know what? And there's something about that. It's like you watch the Star Wars movies, and it's like, no, they actually took little model X-Wing fighters and they moved them around on sticks. And it's like, there's a, such a different feeling created than like... Yeah, oh, the analog. Yeah. Yeah, well, like, and then when... Yeah, we, that tactile. There's a tactile feel to it. You know, like there, there's a texture. And there's, there, yeah. I think that the part of it is that that forces filmmakers to make trade-offs, and where it's like you have to, you have to really think like, what can we represent and do a, and do a good job with? And that's, I think, that falls under the category of art thrives in the in, a, in an environment of constraint, because when you yeah. when you have an, a budget of infinity to produce. Uh, something, whatever can come out of an artist, uh, a director or CGI manager's imagination, and they can just throw thousands of computers and, and renderers at it. It's sort of like, well, why not just like turn up the spectacle to 11? And yeah. leave, you know what I mean? And like, let's all get lost in, in, in 15 minutes yeah. of visual chaos versus like, okay, no, what can we actually make look good? And how can we make it serve the story? Because the visuals alone can't sell it. It has, it has to serve a narrative function. And I think that may right. be some of what, um, what, what, what movies are losing. Yeah. And I've, I've written about this before. I mean, it, the, the, the other problem is the detachment that a computer programmer has. Cause like, um, mm. what, what are the, what are the case, like a, like a computer programmer who does like CG, like what are the chances that they've been in a fight <laughs> that they've, uh, you know, um, got into about a fisticuffs with someone or they practice or at the very least practice martial arts. What are the chances of this? Uh, like you, you've lived in the heart of Silicon Valley. You, you might have a better idea, but like my, all my brothers are computer programmers mm-hmm. and they, they've never fucking stepped foot in a dojo. Sure. And I have, but I'm not a computer programmer, mm-hmm. but you know, 
the so they're they're automatically removed from the from the that experience and so then they're trying to portray this on screen with um with uh with all this technical whiz bang but it's 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 a loss of reference of reality reference whereas like before in a hollywood film you'd have stuntmen who you know maybe in a previous life they were a race car driver or they were a soldier or something like that you had stuntmen who could kind of like you know they could they could at least fake it you know and they could take the bumps mm-hmm. and um and like uh, you had people that were trained in swordplay, like uh, like the people that would train the people in Star Wars how to use the lightsabers and stuff. They were trained in swordplay, so you had this you had this very holistic atmosphere of creation because people were already coming from at least a background of, of experience. Whereas with a computer program, they're like, oh, we'll just animate it, yep. and but and and that's why the, also the fight scenes like they have no like the whole thing that bothered me about the Avengers is all of New York City was destroyed, but you never saw one dead body. No, oh, that's a great point. And you, and and they were just fighting generic looking robots. It was like, there was no sense of toll of, there's no sense of disaster. It was just like a numbing, like just, you know, just, just explosions everywhere, but without any, without any, and if anyway, that, if anything, that's a, that's a work of propaganda <laughs> because you don't see the dead bodies. You don't see, you just see explosions with no, it's like a magic trick. You see explosions but with no sense of, um, of, of fallback or uh, I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss for words here at the moment, but without any sense of, uh, uh, say what? Consequence. Yeah, exactly. That's the word. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Without any sense of consequence. You have no, you have no sense of consequence. Everything is just out of context. And that's what propaganda tries to do. It tries to take you out of context to present another type of to, to present a certain worldview to basically brainwash you. Mm-hmm. And that's what something like the Avengers does. But then how many of these people have been in a war zone? You know, how many of them are from Serbia or uh, Croatia? And how many of them are from, uh, or, you know, saw 9-11 when it happened? It's like when I saw that movie Star Wars Rogue One, it was just grossly irresponsible, I thought, because they, they tried to imitate a Desert sequence, a desert war, guerrilla war sequence, which was obviously a callback to the Iraq war. And it's like, what are all the soldiers who served in Iraq? What are they thinking when they see this? Yeah. And then they had like this thing that looked like a mushroom cloud of a nuclear explosion. Well, I lived in Hiroshima. Do you people know what that fucking bomb did? Yes. You know, you know, it's just like, it's just this irresponsibility as well. And I'm not trying to be like, I'm not trying to be a moralist here, but I am being a moralist in a way, but in the French sense, a moralist. Uh-huh. You know, just trying to 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 analyze like the the you know like kind of like the cultural the cultural impact of 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 what these what these images do to people you know in the sense that they 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 kind of numb the mind mm-hmm. and um and in a way like you said they're trying to erase our memory and it's like you know memory is very important it's like Saint Augustine wrote chapters on memory in in the confession because memory is what gives us a sense of the divine. It's what gives us a sense of God. It shows us what, you know, that the fact that we have an imperfect memory lets us know that we're human, that we're not perfect. But it also gives us a sense of something higher because a lot of times the past is not the past. It lives with us in the presence. It's why we are who we are because of the past. And memory helps us recall these things. That's why nostalgia, even though I hate nostalgia for nostalgia's sake, nostalgia is actually a very important an important thing because it helps us start calling back to things. 
like then like why you know this, this you know this thing or that thing and what you and as you pointed out they're trying to strip us of memory mm-hmm. because when you lose your sense of memory you lose your sense of transcendence you lose your sense of of first the past but then the the higher the higher reasons for the past like why did this happen mm-hmm. you know and then you're just completely and i know all the motivational people like to say you need to be in the present but when you're completely in the present devoid of the past, devoid of memory. You're just stripped bare and you're at the mercy of, of, of whatever's going on in that moment. And then once again, you're taking things out of context. Whereas the Stoics, it was actually completely opposite. They, they were in the moment, but they were not of the moment, if you know what I mean. They're like, this is happening, but I can control my reactions to it. Why can't I control my reactions to it? It's because I understand how the world operates. I understand how the world like I, I understand creation, and therefore I can control my reactions to it. This is this is so vital because this is what I'm trying to do with the Renaissance of Men is explain to to men uh, in this men's movement that have been separated from their memory of or they never had it to begin with of how much work has been put in to bring us to this moment as men where we can begin asking questions about masculinity and answer them in the face of um, as Jack Donovan calls it the empire of nothing. Um, and I think we're highlighting just how much nothing is in this empire in the in the vapidness of saying that the the signature cultural moment, according to Kevin Smith, who is himself a cultural analyst in a way, is is this hammer scene. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's just how nothing this empire is. Like, if you have to pledge your fealty. Yeah. And so, what I try to explain to men is like this moment of masculinity where we're asking these questions is actually the product of forty years, beginning in the nineteen eighties with the mythopoetic men's movement, going through into the pickup artist community. And into the red pill community, the manosphere, and now into this this ascension of, of fatherhood, um, the, the return of the king. Yeah. Way, this is forty years of memory, and and I find that when I explain that to men, that whoever they they come into this movement through whatever through whatever door they come in through Rollo Tomasi or Jack Donovan or the the various dimensions of the manosphere or dating or whatever, it's like you are the ride. You are riding this wave of forty years of history, and I find that when I explain that to men and help them really understand what's going on, this light bulb goes off and they're they're connected with something larger than themselves and and i think that 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 is a, a microcosm or a, fra- a fractal image of what's going on more largely in our society where we're being cut off from history prior to 1965 you know, like what was actually going on? Like we hear like the 60s is is a, is a, is it hagiography where it's like the 60s was the best time and there was like free love. Is that the word that's hagiography is a, is a positive portrayal? Yes. Okay. So there's this hagiography of the 60s, the 70s are like, yes, know, a little bit of this. The 80s were amazing. And because there's this new synth wave, you know, this re- re- 80s revival that seems to happen every few years. And yeah. And so it's like, Everything since the 1965 is so present in people's mind, but anything that could have possibly happened in the 50s or the 40s or the 30s, you start getting further back into World War II or the Industrial Revolution. It's all been, it's all being slowly, don't pay attention to World War I. And by the way, everything that ever happened before 1965 is racist and patriarchal and terrible. And so don't go looking at that. It's awful. And it's yeah. like dividing people from, dividing men in particular, actually, from their cultural memory of like, who are we as people, wherever we come from, we happen to be cross where we're speaking English. We happen to cross paths in America, but like, who are, who am I? Where did I come from? What's the history of my people? What's the history of this? And, and to remember, because there's this great cultural amnesia that's being forced on us and it's, and it's being enforced 
culturally, verbally, like overtly, like you know, pay only attention to the moment. But I think with the degrading of our attention as well through devices and screens and being locked inside and stuff like that, it's being enforced perhaps biochemically, biophysiologically as well. And this is is the function of great art and literature is to connect us to something higher and more transcendent than ourselves and also the moment. And it has this sort of resurrection kind of quality, like, oh, I came back to life because I read this great piece. This, I read this great book. I read the Iliad and it connected me to something inside myself that I can't articulate, but I feel so much more alive yes. after reading it. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, like you said, this is like 40 years. I, I'd say even go further back. Like I think it, you, you could say, well, it started with the feminist movement because women started asking who they were. Yeah. And then men, because the very first pickup book, I forgot the author, appeared in around 1969. That was the very first book on pickup. And when that, when that book appeared, so it happened right at the height of feminism. So basically now women, they have some, they have some choice in the matter. So men had to reconnoiter the way they, they behaved around them or how they, you know, tried to pick, like they had to build their character. So it started with the feminist movement. It's like, well, what started the feminist movement? What happened before the 60s? And well, the 60s were a result of, um, of kind of like the, the post, the, were part of the Cold War, you know, kind of the post-war boom. Why was there a post-war boom? Well, there was a war. And why was there a war? Well, because of this. And then why did that happen? Well, because of World War because there was another war. You know, like you're going back, back, back. And like, and it's like, and then you learn, well, before World War I, people were questioning their very existence. They felt numb. And they were reading things like, like Freud, and they were reading things like uh, Nietzsche and stuff like that. And, and even like Nietzsche was like saying, something bad's about to happen, yeah. <laughs> you know? You know, and it's like, well, then why was Nietzsche writing about it? Why did he feel? Then you go back to the 1800s. And then it's like, why did they feel a need to write about this? Well, Nietzsche read Kierkegaard. Why was Kierkegaard writing about this? Mm-hmm. And then you go back and like, well, then there was the Enlightenment. Why the fuck did the Enlightenment happen? You know, and like, you just start, you, are, you, you have to start learning history mm-hmm. you know, and how people, and like, you just start going into that stream, you know? Um, and then, um, and, and, and the other thing, like you mentioned is like, where you when you go into dangerous territory with this new world where memory's been stripped is both on say the left wing and the right wing side. Yep. In this postmodern world, you can just start making your own history. You can start like just picking and choosing the stuff you like, and you're going to disregard all the rest. And that's something that um, you know that's like something I also wanted to point out in content uh, mm-hmm. is is with that's one of the evils of postmodernism. And one of the biggest influencers of postmodern was Martin Heidegger himself, in the sense that was, they were trying to they were, they were they were trying to take parts of history, and he was trying to and and mold it into their vision. And they're saying, "Well, that's that's what that's what history is. It's just because Michel Foucault was a historian. He wasn't a philosopher. He was a historian. And he's like, this is the nature of history. It's a power struggle, and the person in power determines the narrative." And so, therefore, you can deconstruct it. And um, um, there might be something, but you see that even on the right-wing side, like someone like, uh, who was very uh, influential in the post-war period was Julius Evola. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people on the right, they love to read Evola. And I haven't read much, but I've read Rene Ganon, who uh, influenced him. But Evola, he wanted to create a Western history that was devoid of Christianity. He thought that we'd miss something by, the, by Christianity kind of, uh, taking over um, what, from the Roman Empire. And his was like trying to go back to some sort of 
pagan roots and just kind of doing a leapfrog of 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. And that's a form of right-wing stripping of memory, right? Mm -hmm. And Heidegger, Heidegger was the same way. What Heidegger wanted to do was he wanted to get away from classical philosophy. He thought that we went really wrong with Plato. (laughs) (laughs) And um, he wanted to therefore jump into something new. And that's when he created his whole universe of like Dasein and Shine and, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, being there and thrownness and all that type of stuff is that he, and, you know, postmodernists were deeply influenced by Heidegger. Mm. And, and like, you know, just like on a website, like countercurrents, like they did a, they've, they've done like a five article piece on, on Heidegger and how right he was, but it was basically to disassemble. It was, it was a motive to disassemble the, um, the, the classical thought structures yep. um, that of, 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 of Plato and Aristotle. And, by, and the way he did it was through a miss, either, I don't know if it was a willful, but it was at least, um, it, it, he did it in an error of translation from the Greek. <laughs> and so he basically misinterpreted Aristotle and Plato, either purposely or accidentally. Oh, wow. And then use that to, to um, as the basis to start his his new type of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And but like any philosophy, there's there's a certain grain of truth to it. So there there isn't. So the, of course there's an appeal to it. But every a lot of the great modern philosophers, they studied under Heidegger, like Hannah Arendt, and um, uh, I think uh, you know Hannah Arendt's one and uh, a, a few others. You know they oh um uh, like you know. Uh, even like the Frankfurt School, I think they, they probably had some dialogue with Heidegger. I'm not sure, but I, I'm not going to, I don't know. I don't know for sure. But anyway, you get what I'm saying. Yes. Is that it's very much a modern attitude to start picking and choosing from the past and saying, you know, the, you know this, well, um, and, and then started using it for our, for, for our own purposes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, I, like even, even T.S. Eliot was like saying that, you know, who's also the most modern of poets that, that modernity, I mean, there, that nothing's ever locked into tradition. You know, it's like at the time, something was very, was very modern. And so you have to be very careful like when people are talking about tradition and stuff and, and other things. Like, but that's the whole thing. You have to form yourself as an individual and you have to start saying, you have to start learning for yourself and be able to trust yourself mm-hmm. about like, you know, you have to become a thinking person, mm-hmm. which is the hardest thing to do today, I think. Yeah, I agree is to be a thinking person, to develop yourself as, as, as to develop where you even trust your mind because we have no authority. Mm-hmm. It's like we, we live in a time like after the Protestant revolution where, okay, the Pope no longer is the, the main source of interpretation for the scripture. So how do I know what the scripture means? And what John Calvin did is he came up, this is what Calvin's famous for at the time. This is what made him famous. Is he wrote a book on how to interpret scripture yourself. Mm-hmm. Without papal authority. Okay. Good for you that. Know, you know, right? But what a lot of people don't realize is well, what makes Calvin an authority? What makes it, <laughs> you know, but, but, that, but that's the, so we're kind of thrown into that conundrum now. You know, it's like where we have to interpret things ourselves. And the only way we do it is from learning from other people. Well, what makes them an authority? Mm-hmm. And so we have to, so we're always like in a constant state of vetting, you know? Like, are you really an authority? Do I really trust you? And like, that's why you see a lot of that on like on social media and stuff. Everybody's trying to take everybody down. There's like all this takedowns, you know, it's, it's like a bucket of crabs. Men, 
We're now almost halfway through 2021. Where's your fitness at? Is it where you want it to be? By this point, if you've listened to my podcast, you know what an important part of my story my fitness transformation was. It was something I'd wanted for a long time and a gift only I could give myself. I did, and it went on to change my life. And I'm just one of countless similar stories. I was motivated to do it on my own, but looking back, I wonder what I could have accomplished with guidance and support. Enter Derek Arellano of Train Volition. Together, Derek and I assemble a special program called the Volition Renaissance, targeted specifically for my listeners. We work to merge our values. I encourage men to bravely embrace and cultivate their masculinity, and Derek celebrates men's desire for physical prowess and accomplishment, driven by his success as a top 10 U.S. bodybuilder. Putting them together, Derek has developed a 12-week all-encompassing online program that embodies both. You kick off the program with a 30-minute consultation where Derek gets to know you and plots your trajectory. Then you get a training and nutrition plan tailored for you and your goals, whether they be weight loss, mass gain, sports performance, or rehabilitation at any age or stage of life. Then you get a mobile training app to track your progress, lifestyle coaching to help you cultivate habits for success, three PDF eBooks that outline Derek's philosophy behind fitness and nutrition, and finally, a direct line to Derek for support when you need it most. The purpose behind this offering isn't just to get you in shape, but to create your physical renaissance. Derek's brand is called Volition because it means making a choice, taking the path of effort, and using your willpower to achieve a goal. That's why he's the perfect partner for the renaissance of men. So to learn more and sign up for Volition Renaissance, visit volitiontraining.com slash renofmen. That's volition, V-O-L-I-T-I-O-N, volitiontraining.com slash renofmen. Or to learn more about Derek, check out my podcast episode with him from this year entitled Fitness and Your Higher Self. Once again, to learn more, visit volitiontraining.com slash renofmen to sign up now and start your physical rebirth. No, actually, I wanted to dive deeper into that because this this gets to the point that you were making about it's about the conversation. And that's what we've lost. Like, I don't have a problem with Heidegger or any of the postmodern philosophers or the Frankfurt School or any of these guys making their philosophical claims. Yes. It doesn't matter. You get, to, you get to make your claims, but you do not get to impose your worldview without participating in the other side of the dialogue. And that's- Absolutely. That's what we've lost is we have this uh, we have this um, this whole way of looking at the world, the way that I explained it. so i was I was uh, living in New Zealand for a while, and we can we can get into that later. But I was living in New Zealand, and my girlfriend at the time, she was going back to school, and she's part Maori, and she was getting into the field of Maori health research. So she was going back into into uh, into uh, a, a university in a in a nation that actually has the potential to be bicultural and probably should be yeah. ways. But so she's beginning to get into this world of, of of social research, and she starts being exposed to critical theory, right? And so she yeah. comes home, and we're living together. She comes home, and she's talking about the stuff, and and I'm having to explain because I have quite a bit of experience with critical theory, at least the consequences of right. it. You know, she had been sheltered from it. She had been a mom. She'd raised a bunch of beautiful girls, and so now she's going back to school and kind of encountering these ideas. And so I wanted to intercept you know, the, the, the virulent nature of the critical theory mindset. And I sort of started thinking through how to do that. And what I realized is that what's going on in the universities today and in our culture generally is that students are being sent to college 
and they're being given this pair of of, uh, of tinted glasses, and uh, which is critical theory. And they put the glasses on. Let's let's say they're they're yellow yellow shades or something like that because they're not definitely not rose colored. The yellow shades. You put the yellow glasses on, and certain things in the environment will stand out. Oh, I hadn't seen that before. But then you have to take the glasses off, and then you can put on another way of looking at the world. Yeah. And see like, oh, there's other things there. Okay, the view like the view of that reality is distorted, but it highlights things you wouldn't otherwise see. What's going on in our culture right now is we're all being given through, uh, through school, higher education, through the media, this pair of yellow glasses, and they're being stapled onto our face. And, and we're being told that that's reality. And people don't have the philosophical or intellectual ability to pull the glasses off and see reality for what it is. And so what that's doing is that's preventing people from being able to engage in a dialogue about reality because they're they're wearing these glasses that distort everything and they're being told that's what it is. Yeah. Like, but we've lost any notion of having a conversation. Like, well, what does Plato have to say about that? What does what does uh, what does Saint Augustine have to say about that? What yeah. does Thomas Aquinas have to say? Oh no, those are all like those are all patriarchal white males. It's like, well, Karl Marx was a white male. Like, yeah. <laughs> what yeah. about that? You know. And so we don't get to talk about these things. And this is part of the cultural amnesia: is we're not being permitted to have a dialogue. It's not a dialogue anymore. It's authoritarian. It's one way, one way conversation. Yeah, it, how it, it is. Yeah. Neil and shut up. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, it's a religious ideology. It's no longer it's no it's no longer ideology. It's religious. You know, we're not we're not in a religion. We're not in a philosophical sphere. We're now in a religious sphere. Yeah. You know, and if you are a heretic, you're going to get burned at the theoretical stake. <laughs> so um, the uh, you know there there is a there's kind of a silver lining in that in a sense though. It's like when you talk to young people, and I you know I talk to young people in person and. Uh, you know, I do talk to people. I don't just sit in my house. <laughs> but when you, when you talk to people and you start, it's now easier than ever to, to jolt people from their thinking. Because when they hear something that's a little out of the ordinary, they, they're kind of jolted like, oh, oh. And if they have even a modicum of intelligence, they'll want to hear what you have to say. Okay. Um, and like, you know, the, and at least if you give off a sense of authority. You know, uh, and that's, and you do that through your personality. You don't do it by being a bore. <laughs> you know, you know, you don't do it by being an asshole, but um, they, they, if you just start, you know, talking, if you just start talking about it, you know, in a reason, in a reason sense, they're, they're, they'll, they'll have to live because it's so jolting because they're so used to seeing the corporate, you know, the corporate, you know, neoliberal speak that they, they've all just, I don't want to say brainwashed. They've all become numb to it for one thing. So when they hear anything that's a little uh, a little subversive, they laugh and they think it's funny. But um, not not in this very public sense like we used to in the '90s. Now it's like just more privately. But it's it's but it's like a breath of fresh air. It's like I mentioned this you know to somebody. I said um, I'm not a fan of like Joe Rogan. They go what? Like they couldn't believe that. They go, I've never heard anybody say they don't like Joe Rogan. But of course we train at an MMA gym. And, you know Joe Rogan is like. Um, He's like fucking MMA Plato, so um, right. <laughs> um, but when but when they hear that, and then I just start giving off my reasons. Well, it's like I think he's controlled opposition. I don't, you know, I don't. Yeah, uh, it's like I think he's just basically he's the approved establishment dissident. Sure, okay? like that, like like that's it, whoever the guest is on Rogan. That's as far as you're allowed to go in, in terms of cultural acceptance. Like that's just an opinion. I, that's not, you know, that's. And I just explain my reasons, and not to mention, I just don't really ever hear anything, really all that. I'd rather read 
Plotness or something. I, I don't need to listen to Joe Rogan. And um, and there's nothing against Joe. Joe, I'll, I'll go on your show anytime. So, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but um, anyway, so I put there like I've never heard anybody say that. And like that was you know among our circle, that's a very accepted heuristic about someone like Joe Rogan. Right. But for someone like a normie like that, they that that's 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 mind blowing. So it's not like I'm saying like something like incredibly, you know, incredibly like, you know, subversive or something. I'm just making a little, just, just a little, a little dissident point there. And, um, uh, and then, and then there, that, that, that kind of, you know, opens up to other dialogue, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and so I think there is, there, there's a, there's a silver line in that there, there's an opportunity to expose people because people are so numbed to stuff that they're actually looking for depth. And in fact, when they encounter depth, they, um, they, they appreciate it. And like, I, I was like talking to, actually I was talking to a priest who, who liked content. We we're talking about Avengers Endgame. And he's like, I thought, he said, I thought it was actually quite a good movie. And I pointed out the reasons why I didn't like it. But I said, you know, I've noticed now with a lot of this Hollywood blockbuster fare is that, you know, like I thought at the beginning, the movie was way too melancholy, way too morose. Like, and they're, they're trying to create a form of pathos mm-hmm. with all their dead superhero friends. Mm-hmm. And I think like that is now the mainstream form of emotional processing because they're so deprived of, of the literature and the film and the culture that we grew up with that for younger people now, this is their form of like this. It's a very, very superficial form but it is a form of emotion. Like this is their way of like trying to uh, uh, process, uh, to have like emotional, uh, emotional process. Oh, and it, it, it ha- a pathos, yeah. It has to be in the Avengers. Whereas before it didn't need to be in a movie like that because you had other things for that. Mm. And, but now it has to be in there because I thought like a lot of these movies are just so top heavy. They're just like so long. Like, well, you have to include everything now because people are, are missing a lot of stuff. Like a lot of people like watch Japanese anime. Like, oh, this scene was just so heartbreaking. It was just so heartfelt. And like, I cried watching them. Like, really? It's just a cartoon. And, it's like, and like, you're getting an emotional resonance from this? But it's just, once they've been so deprived of that, that any little bit of it, you know, is like St. Paul says, you know, like, you know, milk instead of whole foods. Even just a little bit of the spiritual milk just that is, you know, it leaves an impact. So if you give, if you present whole food, you can, it can, it can be really impactful. To the people who are, to the yes, people who are, who are deprived. Yeah. 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 The people who are hungry for it, because I think that there, yeah. are, there are a lot of people that, that are, that aren't aware. I, I'm, I'm grateful to hear, by the way, that you find it easy to, to jar people into some amount of like awakeness of critical thinking of curiosity. And that's really the word is, is curiosity yes. or inquisitiveness, because in my experience, it can be quite difficult to do that because there's a very small number of people who actually have maintained their curiosity or inquisitiveness in the face of what feels like, you know, well, what is pure authoritarianism? So there are a lot of people that my friends and I use the, the term fluoride stare. You know, you say something to someone that's outside of the approved narrative about anything and their eyes just glaze over, you know, like yeah. does, not, does not compute. And so I find it very difficult to, to find the right topics to jar 
to jar people out. And and you know, and I think with regard to with regard to Joe Rogan, like I I don't know that I approach him as the kind of guy that I would go to for philosophy. I think yes. he's a skilled interviewer and he has interesting guests on to discuss, but like if I want to know about the philosophy of modern times, like I'll talk about it with my friends or think about it myself, but I'm not going to go listen to Joe. Rogan. And then, then, you know, there are plenty of other podcasts that get into that. Rebel Wisdom is one, Jonathan Peugeot. Like there are a lot of people yeah. who specialize in reflecting very movingly on, on, uh, on, on the modern predicament from a variety of different perspectives. So I think expecting Joe Rogan to be, you know, your, your philosopher is a bit like asking a BMW to go off-roading up a mountain. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. That's not what it's for, you know, and, and, but I, and I'm happy to hear, but if you're looking to Joe Rogan as if he's your, he's your philosopher, he's the depth of your philosophy, you know, okay, good luck with that. But I, I would like to find people who are willing to be jarred awake. You know, you throw a curveball at them, you know, I, that would be more interesting. Like, well, that's interesting. I just put a, I just put a little crow, a little crowbar into this little tiny crack that I saw in your psyche. And maybe I can begin opening that up a little bit to open you up to some interesting, interesting ideas in a variety of different topics. I find that process to be very difficult. Um, yeah. In terms of just numbers of people that are curious in that way. Like you said something there, what's, what was behind that? Like, if I heard someone say that to me, I'd be like, oh, we're best friends now, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so I, I experience that very rarely, but I'm very fortunate to be finding more and more men around me that are at various stages, you know, of being like, I've realized there's a lot going on. Let's share more. Or I've got so much to share because I've been curious. So I, I get, I lose sense of just how prevalent it is out there in the wider world. Yeah. 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 You do. Um, I don't, well, you know, I, like I, what I mentioned at the intro, I was, uh, I was, you know, I worked as a missionary and, and when you're, when you grow up in the evangel evangelical church, like, you know, mission work is a very important part. So I don't want to, like, I, I don't want to compare like our worldview to like say spreading the gospel or something, but, it, but there, there, it, that does kind of play into it. It's like talking, but you learn how to talk to people and see, you know, what's in, you know, what's important to them. And then you're like, cause like with, with evangelism, like you're, you're trying to open them up to start talking about like, you know, Jesus and stuff like that. But with, uh, but you know, it's just letting people like trying to appeal to people on their, you know, on their level, see where they are at and then trying to, God, I'm making this sound like it's a sales pitch or something, but, but I think, you know, where I'm going with it's just basically being empathetic. Right. And then seeing like, okay, you know, and then, and, and there's actually, even as the Bible says, it's like, don't dispense truth with a, with a, with a sweet tongue, right? That's, that's a gross paraphrase, but, um, but you know, it's like, like, don't like, don't beat people over the head with it, which is actually what a lot of Christians actually do. Unfortunately, it's like they beat people over the head with it. And, um, but it's like, basically, you know, um, but, you know, basically try to try to be empathetic to people. And a lot of, that's one thing we've also lost as well, because empathy is actually a masculine virtue. I agree. Um, and, but, but it's something that's, that's been lost. Actually, Robert Bly would talk, I was, cause I was reading a little bit about him last night. He's talking about how there people have become hyper-masculine. And so they're losing kind of like the soft edges that, that, that make men nice. Like they, and, um, uh, you know, like John Stepling, who, who's actually, he's a communist, uh, play, <laughs> I think he's a Marxist playwright, but he's, he's somebody who I, who I've been talking to. And he's, he's, a, he's actually, he's a very perceptive 
cultural writer, he, he's a fan of Robert Bly. And he pointed out in his article about the abstract expressionist, like, you know, that the abstract expressionist had the, the right, you know, had kind of like the good quality, the quote unquote good qualities of masculinity, like sensitivity and, and, and empathy and maturity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like understanding things. And these are things that have been lost. And I, you know, look, I love the bro stuff, like lifting weights, being hypermasculine. Like, I think it's better to overcompensate than undercompensate. Okay. Cause you can always dial it down. <laughs> um, it's hard to dial up, but you can always dial it down. But, um, you know, those things have been lost. But, but Stepling made actually a fantastic point. He said, in this age, we care more about ambition than curiosity. Mm-hmm. And okay. I, I am a curious person. I've always been a curious person. I'm going to be a curious person. I want, I like learning and I like to learn what people are doing, what like people are, uh, you know, what, what, what people are thinking. And um, so rather than condemn the modern age, I want to learn what is the modern age and like why, and why is it this way? You know, and hopefully that can lead, you know, to, um, to, to healthier, to, to healthier dialogue. But like you said, you have to find people that want a dialogue Mm -hmm. because a lot of these times, it's, it's, it's a religious view, back to the mission and everything. For a lot of people, it is a religious worldview for them. And if you speak anything, if you just tried to, sometimes if you tried to, I haven't experienced much, but I experienced more online than in person. But anytime you try to go a little bit outside or you try to acknowledge reality, they, they, they lose their mind. Mm-hmm. But their mind's already been lost. They just act, they, they act crazy. Like, how dare you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And, but so the people first, they're going to have to want dialogue and, and respect dialogue and how, and how are they going to want dialogue? They're going to have to see you as, as an authority, as someone to, as someone that they need to dialogue with. And how do you do that? You have to project strength. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, this is not someone I can fight with, but this is someone I, I might be able to appeal to their reason. Have to negotiate with. Yes. Yeah. Cause well, that's, that's, that's what peace negotiations are after war. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like, yeah. It's like you have the superior firepower. We want you to stop. What do we need to do? <laughs> please, please just let us let us live, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, not that I, you know, some walking around being some merciless person. <laughs> well, so this, so I, there's so much more I want to, I want to get into philosophically, but I, I feel the need to be a good host and, and okay. transition to how all this rolls into your book. Because okay. we, can come, we can we can go wandering off in the wilderness talking philosophy all day, and I, believe me, I would love to. But and and I'm, I'm enjoying everything that we're doing here, especially talking about Robert Ply and how the how yeah. the how the men's the men's uh, the Renaissance the men's conscious movement actually kind of someone did explain to me, Dr. Warren Farrell explained to me how it probably did come out of the women's consciousness movement in its own in its own unique way, or sort of like a spiritual branch off of it. And that's an yeah. that was an idea that pushed me in my mind. I want to get into all that and and I'll recommend Robert Bly's uh, uh, a gathering of men. It's his interview with Bill Moyers, which is I just watched it the other day. It's on YouTube, and it was how the mythopoetic men's movement exploded into the, into the public consciousness in the, I think it was in the early 80s, and then Iron John kind of grew out of that right. in the late 80s. So that's, that's a whole set of conversations I want to get into. But I think there's something, there's, there's uh, also something really important in our, how, does, how all this plays into your book. Because what you, what you seem to do now that we've established a, a ground of mutual shared philosophy and outlook on life and, and worldview, you know, what it seems to me now that I understand all this, that you sort of try to do, let's play devil's advocate and go Absolutely. and go into this world and let's let's play out the math on this. And let's say I'm going to go a whole into this world of like, I, I don't know, maybe online 
4chan shitpost trolling. Yeah. Turn up the volume on that in this environment and see what happens. It kind of feels now that now that we've talked it through, that kind of feels like what you the thought experiment you might have done with content. Yeah, yeah, there was that, but it was also back to Tom Wolf because Tom Wolf, who was actually influenced by um, Emil Zola, and Zola went off to become. He called it. Um, he he Zola saw himself as as a reporter. He would like you know when he wrote like when he wrote like Germinal, he went into the coal mines. And he wanted to learn how the coal, how the coal miners worked. And that's when he wrote, you know, that's when he wrote Germinal. And that's what Tom Wolfe did. He went off into New York high society and that's, and he learned, and he went to parties. He, he said, I'd been to parties, but I never really observed the parties. So he then would go to the, so then he went to the parties and he would sit, basically stand in the back and see how people were interacting. And he said, people would come up and talk to them. He wouldn't really talk to them. He said he had to apologize later to them, saying it's like, "Look, I was working on the novel," and like he, he had to start. He had to start taking an objective distance of things. And I felt like, you know, I I hadn't read anything. They really kind of captured the spirit of what was going on. And I thought, well, I'm going to be. I'm in the thick of it, but now I need to step back and observe it, and kind of and and report it. Like this is what people. This is what people are saying. This is how people act. You may find it shocking, but I am presenting it. This is what's going on. You know, um, it's kind of like a filmmaker presenting a scene with a wide angle lens. It's at an objective distance. And like, like Stanley Kubrick does a lot of that. And a lot of people found like Clockwork Orange so disturbing because he had a very objective camera distance. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it wasn't very, and, and, just, and, it, and it unsettled people because he wasn't making a moral, he wasn't taking a moral stand. Mm-hmm. But I mean, with content, I end up do taking a moral stand, I guess. But, um, but, um, but yeah, I wanted to be a reporter in a way. That's how, because like, I was a journalism major when I first started in college. And when I was in high school, I wrote on the school paper. And, and so I was like, I can gather information. So I started taking a lot of notes, but also you had to see how people were acting, but you also have to see how people think. And then once again, you have to have a historical sense. How does this fit into a context of, some, of, of, the, greater, of the greater picture? And I, and I can... And I can see that. And it was an important, it was an important moment to report on. And this yes, is, this that's is, what I thought. I thought something important was going on that people were missing, by the way. I thought people were missing or they were misinterpreting that because I was talking to an executive about the alt-right and his interpretation of the alt-right. This was in Los Angeles. I was in Los Angeles and the person I was talking to, I just casually mentioned the alt-right. And he described it as, oh, it's just an old-fashioned it's just a rehash of, of, of the racist movement from the South. No. And I was, like, I was like, wow, that is a complete misunderstanding of the movement. Yeah, it's really sad. And I was like, and I'm, like, it's like I'm like, sure, that might be a part of it, but that isn't it. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of to dive in and just kind of capture it. And like almost like a steel frame of the moment, just like capture it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And... and- that's the thing that that's the thing one of the things that came across and that was was you captured you captured this movement which i'm not really i'm not really a part of but you right. know i see that i see the products of it and i i saw the way that the media was framing it and i'm like i don't know that that's what's i don't know that that's what's going on it's something different it's something yeah. it's something um it's something with a with a very different character something with a very different spirit something something wrong in totally different ways and to try and map this movement onto something from the past in order to understand it actually misses what's important about it that may be the point is to miss what's yeah. important 
miss what's important about it. But and and I like how that you approached it in a fictional way because a, a nonfiction journalistic kind of approach to it. You know, it's that it's that the fiction tells meta truths. You know, yes. journalism tells the truth, reports facts. Fiction tells the truth. I think is uh, I'm finding yeah. that there may be a better way to put that. But that's what I liked is like you, you explored this world in a way that came across so much more compellingly and in kind of like this three dimensional way versus like a journalist reporting like well and then I saw this and then I saw this. It's very yeah. engaging and, and educational in a way that that a, a, a straight report wouldn't be. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I just. Well, and thank you for one thing, but also, uh, yeah, yeah, it's that that's what great literature does, you yeah. know, like going is that it, it kind of envelops us in the world, and then we can say, and and you can, I because I was hoping that people like may who might have like been caught up on it, caught up in it, would read it and go, oh man, I know finally, like finally somebody understands. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to create that that feeling, but also, but not like, oh, someone understands. It's like, like more like they feel, I wanted to create a connection. Journalism doesn't create a connection. It yeah. just creates, it creates, it creates an objective distance and a, a sense of, a sense of, it gives you a sense of judgment. Like you see a report about what's going on in the war in Vietnam. You go, well, those soldiers are terrible. But then if you read um, Jim Webb's book, Fields of Fire, which is a fictional account of the Vietnam War, you're taken into a whole new perspective. Like you feel yourself in the grass, you feel yourself in the jungle, you feel yourself in the bush and you, and you feel yourself with these soldiers. You're like, my, my God, it, it, you know, it, you know, you're, you're in there with them in the thick of it. And you might not have agreed with the Vietnam war, but then you're like, well, now you can, but you, you've now identified with the soldiers themselves. So it's, it's kind of like that movie um, uh, actually going back, that the movie Der Untergang, the uh, the movie uh, Downfall about the last days of Hitler in Germany, that was a very controversial film because they thought it humanized Hitler too much. Because you're in the bunker, it's a fiction film. You're in the bunker with him, his last days. You're seeing him go crazy, and you're seeing you're seeing not only the evil side of Hitler, you're also seeing his human side, and that's very very dangerous. And they they understood that immediately when when it came out, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and and but I wanted to. But I, but I like that sense of discomfort because I, I do think art in a way can be confrontational, but it can also be affirming at the same time. But it can be confrontational. It can say, like when you, when you like as I say, it's like when you go to the Sistine Chapel, you see a very Renaissance Catholic view of theology when you look at the Sistine Chapel. Understandably. It's, it, it's beautiful, yeah. but it's confronting as well. Because then me as a Protestant American, I got to say, do I, do, I, do I believe this? You know, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, so you're taken into Michelangelo's world, but then he creates unsettling feelings in you, but it helps you, but he's also guiding you. You can, you can process mm-hmm. them too. And, um, and, and I think a lot of great literature is like, sometimes like, uh, my, my brother, he's like, he's like, your book is too raw. That's what he said. He's like, you're, it's, just, it's just too raw. You need to be softer. Like, no, I don't. No, no I don't. Please don't. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I said, because I like, when I read like Michelle Huelbeck or I read like Brett Easton Ellis, it's like the rawness is what, is what told me, this is someone who's telling me the truth. It's an ugly truth, but they're not going to lie to me. And that's what I wanted. When people read content, I didn't want them to ever think they're going to get a load of bullshit. They're, they're going to read it and they're going to go, this guy, what he might be writing might be horrifying. It might be unsettling. It might make me uncomfortable. but he is telling me his worldview, um, and he's telling it to me straight, 
And I'm not being bullshitted here. And there's a lot of bullshit in this world, especially today. Oh, yeah. We all talk in a corporate speak. And that I wanted to jar people. I wanted it to be jarring. Because so people will say, oh my God, this, this is like, it's like, this, this is, this is, this is unsettling. But at the same time though, it's at least, at least I'm getting honesty, you know? And so I wanted to create that feeling as well. You know? And you, and you did. And you well, did. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's what I didn't, that's what I didn't see. That's what I didn't see coming. In fact, I started reading the book without having read the, the description on the back. Like I think I got, uh-huh. I got 70 pages into it. I was like, what is going on here? And then I read the book. <laughs> oh, this makes a lot more sense. <laughs> That's why the book description is important. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the trust that I have in Jameson. Jameson says it's it's urgent to read this book. I'm like, okay, I'm reading this book because everything else he's pointed me to over the past year or so that I've known him Mm -hmm. has been standing. And so like he's, 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 he's undefeated. So I just went diving into it. Oh yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he's an incredibly well-read person. Actually, he helped me with content in a way uh, because he actually pointed me to to resources to help me in my research and stuff. So thank you, Jameson. Yeah. He's, he's, if 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 there's ever if, if I ever reprint the book with the special things, I should probably add him, put him as special thanks. Yeah, I mean, let's see. He's he's exposed me to so many so many amazing things, including content that has have been absolutely transformative. Um, to yeah. Experience. So, and but, I, I don't know if he I don't know if he wants me to say this, but I'll say it. When after he read content, he said he said thank you for writing. He goes that felt cathartic, and uh, that's there's not that I can't think of anything more fulfilling to hear, you know, when somebody, because it, I wanted, yeah, that's what, cause that's what I wanted to do. And so it's like, okay, mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was, you know, very, uh, yeah, that was, it makes writing worth it, you know, and there, it's very stressful to write it, you know, cause you have to explore your own psyche itself. And you know, I almost, I don't want to say I went crazy writing it, but it, it was, it was hard. It was, it was a mental journey, you know, mm-hmm. it would have to be. It yeah. Would, well, I mean, well, so, so let's, um, for the people listening, uh, let's describe what the book is roughly about so we can give them, give them some context. Cause obviously you and I know what the book is about. Jameson knows what the book is about. Yeah, right. They may not know. So let's, let's, let's look <sighs> at what the book is about. Okay. The book is about on a, on a grand, on a, on a macro scale. It's about a, it's about an English teacher in Japan who get, who basically is, who, it's about an English teacher in Japan who gets caught up in first a murder and then he gets caught up with a cult and one ties into the other. And then he finds himself at the center of what might be a, 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 you know, a, a global, a, a global conspiracy. But on the, but on the smaller scale, he's also involved in the online reactionary community and how and how that affects his judgment. But the book itself is also his stream of consciousness in a way. Him, and he's writing this all in retrospect because he's basically writing it from, from spoiler, I don't believe in spoiler alert. So he's writing it from a black site, basically. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, giving his, 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 his telling of the events, but he does it in an unconventional way because he, he's basically reacting by the fact that people demand that he tells it in a conventional way. So he's about kind of basically being a belligerent asshole. He's telling it in an unconventional way, just to kind of be a smart ass. And um, the, I, I don't mean to, I kind of just gave away the secret to the book. I shouldn't have said that. But 
<laughs> but yeah, if you want to try it again, I can, uh, I can. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. So he's, 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 he's basically, he's writing the book because he's been told to be conventional. So he writes it unconventionally. And once I said, it's a journey from chaos into order, it starts, so it starts chaotic, but it starts chaotic on purpose. But then even he doesn't necessarily believe what he's writing. In that sense, it's actually a, a very oxymoron here. It's actually a very traditional post-modern novel. Mm-hmm. So, but it's, but at the same time though, it becomes a meta, it becomes a meta analysis of postmodernism itself through postmodern storytelling techniques. Hmm. So. That's, and that it was, it's funny. It was the postmodernist storytelling techniques, the fragmentation of the narrative, the fragmentation of his thoughts, the fragmentation of the style, really, because it'll switch from, you know, a sort of a, 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 well, the book actually, as I think about it now, I think it's two thirds of the way through or, or 80% of the way through. It sort of, it, it changes from yes. a past tense retelling to a, I think it's at a present tense. There's a, yes. There's a tense change. So all through the book, it's very, it's very fragmentary, but I didn't actually like realize that until right now. It's, it comes across in this very holistic way once you agree to enter into the world of the, of the book and, and you pick up you know, the, the structure of the language and the pacing and, and, and all that stuff. And once, once you sort of have this you know, f- fax machine syncing up psychically, I guess, in a way that yeah. it does with great writing, it's like, okay, now that I'm in the book, it all happens very, very seamlessly. And now that I think about it, that's, that's, a, um, that's a pretty cool achievement, actually. Even, actually, even in the, I made a point that intense, memorable scenes, even in the first part of the book, were described in the present. He switches tenses mm-hmm. from past to, he, because he remember he has the memory so vividly that it's, once again, going back to memory, that it's present with him. Mm-hmm. And so I describe it in a present tense. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, in the very, very first draft, I, Corey, I told people what I was doing, but I said, you know, I'm going to take that out. I think, because I thought people, if, they were, if, they were, if they're in it and they're reading it, they're, they're going to flow with it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like that was, that was like kind of like the artistic intent was to kind of show the, the memory connection, that the memory is so intense with him that it's still very present. So he writes it in a present tense. Mm-hmm. You know, and, that's the, the, and that's the switching of tenses and everything, which I'm sure if... if like if I had like a traditional copy editor, they would probably be driven nuts. <laughs> but oh yeah, yeah. But um, but that, that wasn't that, that wasn't the case. So yeah, so it's, uh, it was me doing the editing for better or worse. <laughs> you know, and and uh, you know, I I hate to keep. I was reading the two books at the same time. So uh-huh. naturally link your book to Roman McClay's sanction. But that's a great example of a book. It's like I'm reading through this book, and it's like. Does this book need an editor? Did he? It, well, clearly, he edited it himself because I think a copy editor might actually be driven insane, attempting to edit yeah. the book. It's like because because the, the feeling of reading the book is some words need to be taken out, but I can't identify which words, and I don't know if the whole thing would hold together if I took any words out. Like there's something there's something, and the reason why I like the two is there's something holistic about the presentation where it's like yes. You know what you're what you're doing in the book is is beyond. It's not like reading Dickens. You know what I mean? It's it's something so much more. You know, it's something mo- so much more complex in different ways that are only made possible by our modern fragmentary way of living. Where it's like, right. I'm on the phone with you, and then there's the screen over here, and then there's someone over here. It's like we're always switching between all these different modes of interacting with people in a way that a couple hundred years ago people people weren't. And you reflect that in the novel as well yes. as the way that Jason flows back and forth between this online dialogue and this. Dis- 
dissident community, right? This yeah. very dissident community in which he communicates in a very, very particular way. And then he switches over into the real world, having to interact with real people. And then it's yeah. like, and, and the things that he says and doesn't say in the way that he kind of tries yeah. to bridge those two conversational worlds, like it's actually a pretty rich tapestry that you created. In uh, yeah. I'm grateful to talk about it because now I'm getting to process it. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to create a, a tapestry. You know, it's like traditional Japanese aesthetics. That's, you know, it's never about, it's always about creating a tapestry. It's like just slowly filling in the picture. And that, that's what I wanted to do. I think that's what a lot of great literature does. It slowly, it slowly fills in the, the, the picture. And, um, and, 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 and that's what I wanted to do because I, I noticed that like, you know, people like would, uh, like, with QAnon or something like that, people would like text these, oh, the storm is coming or where we go, where we go all. But they're doing it at their kid's soccer game. Mm-hmm. So it's like, there's going to be, you know, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to overthrow the government. Um, but here, here, I got to watch my daughter score a goal. So, <laughs> you know, it's like com- you're completely removed. It's like you're almost living in a completely different mental space. And it's like, um, and, and, and that's what, uh, and that's, but that's what we were all doing. You know, we'll, we'll text these things, but then we got to go talk to people. And, you know, I got I to go order a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. So, and, and talk to the barista and like, do they, do they know that I'm an author? So, you know, no, I don't tell, I'm not going to tell them that because mm-hmm. you know, I don't want them to read content because I don't want them to ban me from the cafe or something because mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. they, they, they might misinterpret it. Yeah. So, but, but that's, that's what we all do. It's like, you know, we're on our phone, which is its own world. Then we drift, have to go, we're split between two conscious, two consciences. Conscious. Yeah. Two sense of conscious of what, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, we're no, split, we're, our minds split between two realities now, more and more. And I wanted to get, I wanted to get that sense across, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, it's like, oh, I'm identifying with this person who lives in Iceland or Croatia or wherever. They're my best friend online for real. Oh, but then I got to go, you know, uh, I got to go, you know, talk to a coworker, you know, it's, uh, and, even though, and we're the ones who really do speak the same language, but in a way, we don't speak the same language anymore. It's like our conscience, actually, Ernst Jünger, who's an influence me, he talked about this in his book, The Worker, how our conscience is completely becoming split, our consciousness, rather, yeah. you know, like, you know, where we are, like having like an objective object subject split in the way we, way we operate. And so that, that was a part of it. And, and yeah, and I wanted to create, I wanted to create the experience of being on the internet or being online in a book. It's like, it's like where people feel and they're like, oh God, oh, 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 I, I, I know this experience. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what I wanted, that, that goes back to the point. That's what I wanted to create, how I felt. Like, you know, where it's like, you know, I'd be talking to my kids or one thing, then I get a ping alert from a Slack. I go into the Slack and like, you know, ha ha ha, you know, or somebody tagging me and, you know, start talking. Like, you know, just, you're almost perpetually distracted. Mm-hmm. And then when you're perpetually distracted, then you're like, okay, what are you, what are you getting distracted from and why? And is that on purpose? Does somebody want us distracted? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, just so, yeah, yeah. Well, this is, I haven't seen it, but I've heard the social dilemma gets into this very much. And, and you, you captured that and you captured it very well with Jason and his friends as well because they're all living in the same world. Like Jason will, will click over into his, you know, his, his radical right-wing crazy, you know, kind of, kind of Slack chat with people saying things that would absolutely get you banned from, from your cafe. Yeah. 
if, but people don't really understand that like, no, this is, you have to read the damn book and you'll see, you'll see yeah. why I'm explaining this. Like, they'll just look at the page like, oh, he said something bad. Yeah. You have yeah. to recognize the artistic intent of it, which I'm sure that, you know, your average barista might not get. But, um, yeah. but he clicks into this, he clicks into this world and all of his friends are doing the same thing. They're on their phones as well, engaging with their own little, their, yeah. their own little universe of, 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 of content, I suppose. And, yeah. and the disconnection between all the people that are ostensibly like friends or maybe their teachers together. And it's like, that was one of the most excruciating things to read about the book was to read these social interactions where everyone is distracted. And when they're talking, they're in conflict in some way. And everything is like, all their lives seem orchestrated around these phones that they're carrying. And it's like, I, I, it was excruciating to read because I could see so much of myself in it. Like, Oh shit, that's so fucking familiar. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's uh, and, and, and then the way that I usually guide people into the book is that um, it's that mismatch between the stuff that Jason is saying online and who he is in life. That's yeah. like, that's the, that's the easiest way into the complexity of the story. It's like, here's a guy who's engaged with this really radical right-wing world. And yet he's living in, he's living in contemporary, like modern Japan, essentially. Yeah. Like he's not who he says he is. And even he doesn't know who he is. Am I this guy or am I that guy? Exactly. Exactly. And I think a lot of us have in a way that type of um, identity crisis in a sense, you know, um, like someone like Mike Enoch, who's a big right-wing alt-right leader. Uh, I think he goes under his real name now, which is Mike Pinovich. But it would kind of sh- shock people while back and they found out he had a, you know, he would say kind of like anti-Semitic things on his uh, uh, The Right Stuff podcast. But then he came out, he had a Jewish wife. Oh, God. You know, and they're, they're, not, they're not married anymore. But like, like but she, was a member oh. of Benai, she was a member of Benai Barith and everything. And it's like, but, you know, which is kind of like they're the... I, I I don't quite know what I'm I'm not going to say speak to what the Nibirth is, but it's it's basically their version of like the Masons or something, sure. right? No? I I don't I've I've heard of it. I can't. I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, you know, it's just it's a social organization, yeah. and and she was a member of that allegedly. But anyway, he had a Jewish wife, and it's like, well, wait a minute, bro. The way you live, the way what you're talking is very different than the way you're living, and um, but. I'm not interested in what Mike Pinovich has to say. I'm interested in the Mike Pinovich that says these things and has a Jewish wife. Like he somehow found a way to, to, to live it, you know? And, um, you know, uh, a lot of, and, you know, and then you like, you start seeing these contradictions in other figures in, in, in that side of thing. And I'm not, and, I'll, and I'm not doing it to call them hypocrites. I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by the dichotomies. By those, by those type of dualities. So I want to get into that. You know, I wanted to get into that, to that space because I'm that type of person as well. And as you, you know, and I think many of us are to a certain degree. And of course, I take it to the extreme in content. But I think we're all kind of like that. And that guy, um, the, the guy who's, who started 8chan, he said that when he was, when he, you know, he was a cripple and he was just, um, uh, you know, relocated to his room right when the, to his bedroom right when the internet was started. He said he got, he goes, he, he noticed how, how raw people would be on the internet. He said it, quote, gave him a window into the human psyche, like into their true nature. And I don't know if it does give it a window into their true nature. I think it gives a window into a certain part of their nature. Mm-hmm. But the way we behave is just as important as the way we think. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a balance. You know, the great, you know, like Plotinus believes that developing the intellectual life was the most important part 
of, of, of a person. And the internet is a kind of a window into that because you do see pure intellect. Like you're seeing pure thought. But at the same time, you know, how we configure that and align that with our daily life is, is, is also important. And it's something that, and I think that's the other part that we're coming to grips with. And people use it. And because like the media is like the modern day Pharisees, they use that as a bludgeon Uh, to to discredit people. Yes. You know, oh, he talks so macho, but he got cuckolded by his wife. Or, you know, oh, he talks so macho, but look, here he is crying. Or, you know, he, he, he talks about, he's so racially pure, but look, his wife is a quarter black or something. Mm -hmm. You know, the, they use it as a bludgeon to judge people. And so that makes very, so what that does is it doesn't, that doesn't help us. That makes us actually, that's where, that's where journalism hurts us because it just makes us all go inward. We all, we want to go more into our world and not reveal it to anybody and keep things uh, tight lipped. Uh, like as Pascal Bruckner said, America is actually the most mysterious country. We don't know anything about America because America lives so out in the open, you know? So she, you know, cause we think, so all the secrets are hidden and that's the problem with the internet. We keep all the secrets hidden because we're so out in the open. And so, so, so people become even more mysterious, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, and any, that's the point. Great literature is about getting into the, you know, into the mystery of, of humanity, the mystery of existence. And so that, that's what I wanted, that's what I wanted to bring forth. You know, that's what I wanted to explore. I think a lot so, of, I think a lot of people would say that there is no mysteries and they'd be wrong, of course, but that there are no mysteries to explore today. Isn't, isn't yeah. the point of the cultural amnesia is to say we're all just these surface beings and our, the details of our lives are chronicled on Facebook and, and our right. and the thoughts are posted on Twitter and everything that we're doing is surveilled by the cameras everywhere. And there is no, there is no inner reality to us anymore. And if you, if you say something out of line, like you should be bludgeoned back into line with what the conventional narrative is and and your secrets become secrets even from yourself and yes i, I think that i think that might actually be the point you know it's like yeah. we're we so alienated from each other from history from uh from the future in some ways from everything except for one very particular model of the future but we're also alienated from each from ourselves and to reconnect you know as as uh people but as men especially with these deepest aspects of ourselves you know, for many men can be very scary because they discover there's a lot more going on inside themselves than they had originally thought. And it's also, it can also be very risky because you find that like, wow, I'm, I might actually be different from everyone, everyone around me. And yet I still want to fit in. So we're fighting these giant forces with, with that are, uh, that are standing in the way of our own authenticity. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge struggle. Yes, and absolutely. And even like the need for authenticity is probably part of the problem. It's like you have to, <laughs> you have to almost accept the fact, well, maybe I am a little bit fake. Okay. Maybe like there, but there's authenticity in the fakery, you know, um, the, with a lot of uh, the American Psychological Association, have you read their, their paper on how to deal with men and boys? I just... It, I just had a two-hour interview with Dr. Sean T. Smith, who is one of the who is a clinical psychologist in Denver, and he's one of the most outspoken critics of the of the APA. Okay, well, this the APA wrote. A, I'm doing. I read it as research on my own of a book I'm working on right now, um, and my next novel. But I read it, and, it's, and it it actually points it it points out some very interesting things, and it and it brings up this this issue that and. It basically points out how 
quote unquote traditional modes of masculinity are what stre- is what's stressing men out yeah. in the sense that they have to project a certain type of things like stoicism or stuff like that. And it's creating mental, it's creating mental problems. And I, I don't agree with that. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think it does get to an interest. It also says something else very interesting in it, that it says that it talks about how being a father, how sons, it admits that kids are more well-adjusted when they have their father around. Yes. Which, which that's a very interesting admission. But then when you start reading the paper, you start then realizing, okay, we've now, we've, we've accepted the fact that basically patriarchy is necessary, but now it needs to conform to our version of it, which is a kinder, gentler, um, you know, uh, like neoliberal type of fatherhood. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's like, okay, we, we, cause we don't want crime to skyrocket. We have to, and that, that that's, so you see this like kind of, so it's gotta be our idea of masculinity that you need to embrace. And also stoicism is bad because you don't want to go see a psychologist. So that's, that's bad for our bottom line. Mm. And, <laughs> that, you know, that's great. You know, so the, so, cause if you just take care of your stuff, then you're not going to need to seek out help. And I think this isn't me to shit on psychology. Like there are, like I've had friends that have gone through cognitive behavioral therapy and it's really helped them. Yeah. It's, okay. It's helped me a ton. Yeah. So I, I don't, but, um, the, but, but like, but you can see like, well, that's what their intent, like you can see like their intentions and then you see it in movies and stuff. Like now every fucking hero, like the rock is a fucking dad in every fucking movie. And he's got a daughter and he's kind, he's, you know, having tea time before he goes out and saves the world. Mm-hmm. And it, it becomes this kind of parody of what it means to, uh, it becomes a parody. It becomes a patriarchy parody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you have like buffoon dad and all the, I don't know where I was going with all this. Okay. I was just just talking about how, you know, the, the, the trouble, the troubles with, with masculinity itself, like, like they see, like the American Psychological Association sees a, a, they they see, they, they want to create basically, they, they, they understood that men are important, but they want, they don't want men to be self-sufficient because then that will require that, because then they won't need the establishment. They, they don't want self-sufficient men. They want men who will accept their masculinity to a degree, but rely on, these, on, this, on this structure to lean on for help and support, you know, which is very counter, which is very counter to 2,000 years, 3,000 years of existence. This is really important stuff because this gets to a couple ideas that, you know, have been floating around for a very long time. The man box, you know, is yeah. like, these are the societally enforced expectations of men that, you know, are ultimately oppressive and, <laughs> and that men need to break out of the man box and, and, and live in this totally alternate way. And, uh, and another part of this it, that shows up as this command to man up, right? Yes. And so, and so, or it's sometimes phrased as men need to take more responsibility. Okay. So like with regard to, and these are ideas that I've, that I've explored in depth in, in myself, because they're, they're actually quite difficult to ref, refute rhetorically because they're fundamentally emotional appeals. If you try to meet, yeah. you know, rhetoric with, uh, was it with logic or, you know, I, I can't remember Arist- the Aristotelian 
division. But if you try to meet, you know, an emotional appeal with a logical appeal, they don't work. So it's like, okay, yes. how, do you, how do you match those two things? The thing with the the thing with the man up command is that you have to be real careful who's wielding that command. And typically in our society, it comes from women. In fact, I yep. just I just saw a I just retweeted uh, yesterday. Uh, you know, a, a woman had said a real man supports his wife if she oh i saw that yeah <laughs> and it's like well look at a real man like first of all like if I, so i'm not allowed to say like a real man divorces his wife for cheating on him and getting pregnant you know it's like oh but that would be horrific like regardless of regardless of of what the outcome is that a that a that a woman is wielding the power to determine what a real man is or should yeah. do and yeah. that men are not allowed to wield that power is is something that's just kind of out there and and there's a book um, by this author Cleo Stiller it's called Modern Manhood and uh, she's a woman and it's talking about the man box and i was on a i was on a zoom call where she was talking about the book and like you say it's another opportunity for the establishment to try to repurpose masculinity for its own ends yes. and so the the empire of nothing gets gets very angry and be, when men begin to begin to say for themselves this is what masculinity is. This is what I'm going to do. I want to have nothing to do with you. And then you get the shame and the guilt and the insults and everything, because ultimately there's nothing that can stop men for defining for themselves what masculinity is. And, and just to, just to loop back to the final piece, which is the man box. The point is not to be in the man box and to then climb out of the man box and then you're liberated. These ideas of stoicism, of assertiveness and aggression can actually be very productive when properly harnessed. As men, we are expected to be stoic in, for example, emergency situations, like the man up command, for example, like everyone's okay with men being weak and subservient and soft, but gosh, when the disaster floods, you better man up and take care of everything. And it's like, if you decide that you're, as a man, are not going to be stoic in that in that situation with the flood, with floodwaters rise, you're no longer useful. So yeah. yes, it is necessary to use stoicism in its proper context and also be a man of feeling. And we were talking about the Iliad earlier. And this is the beauty of the portrayal of both Achilles and Patroclus. Patroclus is Achilles' best friend. I think Patroclus dies and Achilles weeps. Odysseus yeah. weeps. Like, like, and it's, it's acknowledged that these men have deep feeling and they're not divided from their self, themselves and their own feeling. They weep and then they get out and they kill a bunch of dudes. Like, welcome yeah. to being a man. And so I think this is, this, these are additional cultural visions of masculinity that we're being separated from in order to weaken us into this hyper-masculine frame or this hyper-demasculine frame. Right, right. It, it, it goes back to that, you know, the Cartesian like equations, you know, like as Dostoevsky said, you know, Two plus two equals four is just a disaster. And so I'm paraphrasing, but you know, that's one of his famous quotes from Notes from Underground. And, uh, or if like one plus one equals two, then, then we're, we're doomed. Yeah. And in, in the sense that like we're trying to narrowly define things where you have narrow definitions of what masculinity is. Whereas in the classical sense, people used to just be concerned with being. Mm -hmm. So what is being? So that's more than man, woman, that's being. So as you have to, so then you start understanding the hierarchy. So I need to be, I, I am a being. So I need to get in touch with being and I need to get in touch with God. And I need to understand back to the philosophical question, why is the world the way it is? And then you go back to that, God created man and out of man, he created woman. It's like, so therefore on the hierarchy chain, there's, the, there's God, then man, 
than woman. And it's not misogyny. And if it is, it's a benevolent misogyny. But it's basically, it's an order. It's like, I am, I am who I am. And this is, this is my, this is, this, this is my role. I need to get aligned with what, with the nature, with what God, who God is, what, what he has created. And then out of that flows, like you said, it flows toughness. It flows stoicism. It flows emotion. It flows, it flows healthy emotions. It flows, you know, it just, it flows, being is what flows. And the, and then you accept, you know, I don't want to say your role, but yeah, you do accept your role. You know, if and you start realizing you have a role and you might not know what that role is, but that you have one. Because sometimes the best roles accomplished are the ones we don't know. So um, the, uh, the, actually, actually I have my, I have a book. I have Dr. Dr. Shivago, because uh, uh, I know you like to read poetry on your podcast. So mm. the, the very first poem that Dr. Zhivago, that Boris Pasternak uh, has at, at, the, at the end of Dr. Zhivago is a play, is a, is a, is a poem called Hamlet. And he, uh, do you mind if I read it? It's very short. Go for um, it. Okay. He goes, the hum dies down. I step on the stage, leaning against a doorpost. I try to catch the echoes from far off of what my age is bringing. The night's darkness focuses on me, thousands of opera glasses. Abba Father, if only it can be, let this cup pass me by. I love the stubbornness of your intent and agree to play this role. But now a different drama is going on. Spare me then this once. But the order of the acts has been thought out and leads to just one end. I'm alone, all drowns in Phariseeism. Life is no stroll through a field. Mm. That's the end. But that's the nature of being, is kind of like a philosophy um, that like, is understanding that, that life isn't fair and that you have to, but you have to agree to go on and, and, and uh, you know, accept your role. And whatever and whatever it is, and go on that stage, and understanding that has become it, they, they try to make it harder now, you know, because they're they're trying to define it for us. Yes, but not to sound so like postmodern, but we have to define it for ourselves in a sense. Yeah, but I, I did not define it. We have to discover it, mm-hmm. and that's the hardest challenge because. There is no one who's going to tell you, Will, I can't tell you what your purpose is. I can't tell you what your mode of being is. That's something you only can know for yourself. And it's something I can only know for myself, what I need to do. And that's the hard part because it's asking us to be adults. And as an adult, I have to, I have to figure things out on my own. It's not going to be spoon-fed to me. But everybody wants things spoon-fed to them. We're in a state of like perpetual childhood, mm-hmm. you know? And so grow, you know, we have to, and like, in a way, that's what content is about too. It's about Jason basically kind of maturing, realizing that like, you know, you have to figure things out. Um, yeah, unfortunately, you have to figure things out for yourself. And most people don't want to do that type of hard work. You know, you have to get to the nature of being. And that's very, very, that's, that, that's very hard. That's hard to do, especially today, because we're always, you know, because we're, we have constant distraction. And um, constant, uh, you know, just constant berating. Like, you know, it's like a bludgeon against us with all the imagery and everything. Mm-hmm. But also, it can also be twice as rewarding. And it's also easier to do now than ever because we can use technology to discover all these resources and to listen to a podcast like this, mm-hmm. stuff like that, and build these type of connections. 
you've said so much incredible stuff that I don't even, I don't even know where to begin. First of all, <laughs> amen, amen to all of that, you know, and I, I hope, I, I hope I don't sound too much like this, like a, like a fanboy. I'm just, I'm, no, really, that's fine. <laughs> I'm really enjoying, I'm really enjoying this, this conversation and everything that you have to share because it touches on so many different topics that I find really interesting. And, and the first thing that I want to call out is it, it, I want to reference something that you said earlier about you to become a, a thinking person or a thinking man. And that's really the charge right now is you actually have to step up and become the man, capital M, but you get to determine what that looks like. And we have more information than ever. I was talking to a, a friend of mine recently, or I think it was on someone on my podcast saying that like the most incredible thing, there's so much writing going on and, and, and thinking about masculinity right now. We get to learn not just from our own fathers, we get to learn from the best fathers that have ever existed or the men that have thought the most deeply about fatherhood yeah. and the most, and, and the, what an incredible opportunity. Like it's all right there. If you want to, if you want to proceed through, you know, various stages of say spiritual evolution, every possible faith is available to you at the tip of your fingers, right? So you can be a better man. You can, you can, you can focus on the nature of being, which I also want to get into. It's all right there. And yet we have these, we have these devices that are distracting us away from this wealth of, of, of yes. milk as, as St. Augustine would say that in, and, and it requires an assertion of will to say, no, I will not walk down that path. I will walk right. down the path with these, with these technological tools. And it's a, it's probably the most difficult path ever invented if we want to put it that way or, or that's available to us which is the path of, of true individuation that's the real that's the real challenge not that we ever fully get there not that we're ever 100 authentic we're always faking it somehow we're always trying on new things so so perfection is not the goal but just to walk the walk to yeah. re- to, to create the space and the time and the intention to improve as a and I, I love that you said this and I'm going to be I'm going to be borrowing this and thinking about it that before masculinity and femininity is being. And that's like, I was looking for a ground beneath that because the big debate that's going on right now is, is between um, social construction around masculinity is around social constructionists versus essentialists. And the yeah. constructionists say that, um, that, uh, that all gender or, or sexuality is socially constructed. And the essentialists say, no, there is something essentially different about men and women. That's what I happen to believe, but I'm digging into that. Like, where does the essential nature come from? And, and this notion that beneath masculinity masculinity and femininity as being would be a great place for me to go looking for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- well I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. Um, because with, you know, the, like, like the feminine comes out of the masculine. I mean, and the, the positive, a lot of times the positive ass, even Nietzsche wrote that, like a lot of times the positive aspects that we find about women are, are the, are the things that men assign to them, you know, and, the and so I mean they but they all outflow of you. But the thing is, men need some of the things that women give, yes. and you know, and like they. So we we need as men, we need to be close to being. But hopefully, that inspires w- women to be to be close to being to also want to think about being as well. You know, because then we naturally, not forcedly, we naturally then um, kind of embrace our roles. Mm-hmm. Well, you well. Know? Yeah, well, the, and the thing is, as, as you said earlier, these roles that we're falling into seem to be somehow 
naturally slash divinely ordained, right? Yes, there's yes. A natural, there's a natural order to it, and but this is the, this is the thing that the empire of nothing, the Marxist superstate, whatever we whatever you want to call it, is trying to say is there is no higher order to reality. Reality is what we say it is, and this is what we say it yeah. is. We will tell you with every bit of our every billions of dollars and every bit of effort that this is what reality is, and there is no higher order. That we are the we are the authority, and then there are people who are like. Well, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and it can be that quiet, you know. And and to that point, I also understand why people like Jason get very reactionary because something in our in our souls and ourselves, some boundary has been crossed. And the natural response to a crossed boundary is anger. Anger is how yes. we feel a boundary yes. been crossed. And but God, that anger can be just taken and, and and manipulated and twisted into some destructive ends, which I'm sure was also part of the book. Yeah. And you know, that that's kind of like what I what I was also trying to get to is, yeah, it, it takes to, it, it, it makes us angry and then it builds resentment. So it's no longer about being mm. or, or even being a man. It's about hating women mm-hmm. and, um, or it becomes a part of it and, yeah. and, 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 and how you treat them and stuff like that. And then that creates resentment on the female side. Cause then they start becoming to hate men because now they're both operating in hyper modes, mm-hmm. you know, of, and, and that, that just creates more conflict and that's the problem with um, a lot of reactionary politics is that it's it's geared towards conflict, but in the in that type of conflict, the most powerful side is going to win. And and we can talk about how we have all the guns all day, but we don't have all the missiles, and we don't have all the um, surveillance technology and stuff like that. So you have to be very careful that you're not getting mixed up in that circle of argumentation, that circle of conflict, because you're ultimately then just serving the establishment needs when you do that. Instead, you need to get out of that completely and focus on being. When you get to being, you can then start seeing things from a more objective distance and it helps your subjective experience. You know, because when you see like some, you know, like a woman like yesterday, like made some comment, like all men are immature. (laughs) And I just kind of, I just kind of blew it off. Like whatever. Yeah. You know, and you know, they were just, you know, kind of a funny exchange. And, um, but it's like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here. I, I don't have to defend men or anything like that. I, I can just laugh because I'm comfortable in my being. Mm. You know? And then that ends up just projecting a certain type of quiet, confident masculinity. Mm. And so when you focus on being, the masculinity flows out of it, I think. So like, you know, and, and all the, the, the good stuff, but also even the things that people portray as negative, but they, they are negative. It's like artistry, you know, most of the, I mean, most of the great artists in history were men. and so artistry is, is, is a part of that. As a, the, there's a need, we have this innate need to observe reality, but then also recreate it. It's in us. Even Andre Tarkovsky talked about that. That's how he closed out his, his book, uh, Sculpting in Time. He says that maybe our need to create is also what gives us our, our signs of God himself because he's created. And if we're in his nature, then we'll want to create as well. And um, I think uh, like Lev Shestov, the, the philosopher, he said, God doesn't know right or wrong. God just creates. And I think, that, I think that's at a very key point. It's like creation is, is at the very heart of our being. We want to create things. And unfortunately, we've been locked into this, um, this path, the scientific path, where creating is just creating new things like iPhones and cars and stuff like that. And that, that's fine. Scientific creation has, has helped us a lot. Um, 
But also there's artistic creation, which helps us process the world itself. It's like, unfortunately, we're trying to use technology to supplant what poetry, what drama, and what literature, what painting used to do. You know, like, I was like, oh, technology brings us together. Well, the arts will bring us together as well, you know, and the, the technology will give us a better sense of existence. Well, the arts used to give us a sense of existence. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, and, and so I want to, so I, 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 cause I think it's more holistic that way. And uh, I have nothing against science since I'm from a family of engineers, nothing against it, but I, I would like to bring it back into a more holistic, uh, a holistic way of being. That uh, I think we that we've we're we're losing at a very very fast rate, but at the same time I think we're gaining it because we're talking about it. And when you talk about something, you can you can stop it from happening. That, that's a pause. We're talking about it. That's a, that's the that's the great paradox of our age. I was just talking about this. I'm staying at my friend's house in Dallas, and we were observing, like many people do, that it seems like there's this great decrease in consciousness. Meanwhile, we're sitting around talking about consciousness, which itself, itself raises our consciousness. So it's like there's this kind of splitting going yeah. on, where, and, and which is, I guess, where we started off the conversation. But regarding, regarding being, um, is that what Jason discovers at the end? In retrospect, yes. I didn't even know it at the time when I was writing, but yes. Yeah, he did, I was going to, when I was writing, I was thinking he's discovering individuality. But, or he's, but I, I would say, yes, he's discovering being. Yes. He transcends duality and discovers being. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's, I know you didn't uh, set out to write a hero's journey in the traditional way, but it sounds like you might have. Yeah, I might've. And I think, I think that's the best way, like with, with heroes, like with things like the heroes, I don't think it's good to like know about that stuff ahead of time. I think as an artist, you have to like be in the stream of it. And those things are just going to come out naturally. Other people can analyze it and say, it's this, that, and the other, but you can't cautiously think about that. Because then you'll, because that's, I think that's a lot of problems we try to do. We try to reverse engineer stuff and we don't understand the original product itself. So we end up engineering something else, which is weird. And I think that's like a lot of the problems with movies these days is they've all, they've all read Robert McKee's book story. And so they're all trying to engineer the story from what he suggests is the formula. Whereas before people would just write, um, they would just, the story would just naturally come out of them. And then they would talk to somebody and people say, well, you got to, you should probably add this or I don't like this. Like it was a more natural way of doing things instead of just trying to put it to like a set formula. Hmm. They were, you know? they were being, they were creating. Yes, exactly. Exactly. They were in, they were in that flow. They're in that flow of just, of, of creation, you know? And so you have to try to get back into that, into that flow. You know, and for some people that's writing every day. For other people that's just sitting, contemplating, and then like someone like Jim Harrison, he can write Legends of the Fall in nine days and only change one word. Wow. You know, uh, so I mean, it's just different things for different people. Do you have Do you have a minute to talk about your approach to craft? Like, an, an- uh, yeah, sure. Hey, it's my my. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I like. I'm very analog. I like writing things in my notebook, and uh, I like. Uh, collecting a lot of notes like with well I could show you the note card stack right now I have for my next novel but I just like taking a lot of notes and then sometimes I might have too many and I'll just start discarding them but um uh like but I have like an idea of where I want to go and but then once I'm in the flow of writing I get lost and I just just stay stuck in the flow of writing and then new ideas emerge so it's kind of like having a plan but then being willing to discard the plan or go in a different direction go off the beaten path a little um as as you 
as you write. And um, that's just that's just what works for me. It's like not to be locked in, but also um, not to be completely chaotic either. Because then, if you have no focus, you're you're you you can create a mess of a work, which I've done before. Do you do you write every day at like a set time? No, no. You don't write every day, or you don't write at no. a set time? Okay. No, no, no. I, I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't do that. I I collect a lot of notes. I'm always writing. Let me put it that way. But it's it's either I'm writing in my mind or I'm writing. Uh, I'm taking a lot of notes or I'm reading, which is more, even more important. I'm reading. I'm seeing what other people are doing, um, which, which I think is which I think is important. But I'm I'm always sounds arrogant. But I'm always thinking because <laughs> I, I, which I think is the most important part is because like once you once you build things up, like you've thought about it enough, then it just kind of bursts out and it just. Uh, it just flows. It's kind of funny because some of the best parts of content I wrote in 20 minutes, every, the, the part that appeals to a lot of people, like, oh my God, I love that one scene. And it's like, I wrote that in 20 minutes. What about this other part that took me two months to write? Like, oh yeah, yeah, that was good. <laughs> You're like, ah! But yeah, it has to be that. It has to be. It, it has to be that. It's like Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn spent his whole, he spent 20 years writing The Red Wheel which is a book series no one's read. It hasn't even been completely translated into English. It's just now being slowly translated, uh, completed in English. But he spent 20 years writing it. And both people in Russia and um, the US, they don't really care too much about it. But what was he doing while he was writing it? He was living in the US. He was going speaking. He was you know, giving speeches. He was writing. Um, he was writing articles. So in a way, he needed the red wheel and we needed what he had to say while he was writing the Red Wheel. And that's just kind of, it may seem, he might, it might make him bitter. Um, but in a way, we, we benefited from it. And that's just, so the artist will have his motivation for doing something. But then what the people receive as benefit from what the artist does might be something different. But that's fine. That's just, that's the nature of the world. That's the nature of the creative processes. Yeah. The thing that you invest a lot of time and energy and effort into might be completely discarded for various for various reasons, not entirely related to the work itself. But then, you know, this is the story of musicians. It's like that song became the hit. Like there's this there's this UK electronic music band named Underworld, probably the yeah Latin. yeah I know Underworld. Okay, so Underworld's big hit was this track "Born Slippy," which appeared yeah. at the end of uh, Train Spotting. Now, if you listen to Underworld's catalog, they have tracks like. Rez and Cowgirl and and uh, Bruce Lee and Kittens and all this stuff. These are the titles of some of their tracks. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant, driving electronic music that transcends genre. Born Slippy was this casual, cheesy, cheeky thing that they just kind of wrote just for just for shits and giggles and fun. And they're like, and then of course it gets tacked onto the end of Train Spotting in this iconic cinematic moment, and it became their enormous hit that catapulted them to worldwide fame. There was no one more stunned about that than Underworld. They're like, how could that was our big hit? That was the thing we just rattled off in an afternoon. But the thing is, it's not about the effort that you put into the thing; it's the totality of the effort of the process. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You didn't, that one hit didn't just like spontaneously emerge out of you. You earned it by committing yeah. craft over the however long you've been doing the thing, you know? So don't get attached to the product, get attached to the process, I think is the way it's usually framed. Yeah, you're, you're, in, the, you're in the creative flow. Yeah. That's right. So, I mean, which is tough to do. I'm going to be, I won't lie, it's tough to do because I'm a type A personality. I want to see results. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> so, but I, but, you know, the thing is, I, 
I, I do like reading. I like reading. I like uh, I like researching. These are things I like, and like almost like the the novel almost then becomes kind of like a byproduct. But I like writing. I like I like the idea of putting sentences together that are that are beautiful, that that are that are powerful, or they're just that are they, you know they just flow well. Like you you might read something and go, oh, that's some that's some good writing. You know, and like you're kind of proud of yourself. Of course, it might it might go over other people's heads, but you read that like, oh, I'm, I'm proud I wrote that. Mm-hmm. So it's like that, like that book. Uh, like I shared with you that chapter from the the hagiographies that I'm writing about mm-hmm. the the artist fortitude. Like I've I've passed the 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 work in progress to a couple of people, and um, the chapter that I thought was best didn't even land at all. But then the chapter, but that hagiographies hey chapter, my friend said, boy, you really hit that one out of the park. And that one was almost an afterthought to me. <laughs> so so that, that's the one that I'll be publishing in Punch Riot just as an excerpt. That's great. That's great. Well, yeah. I, I read it and I, I really enjoyed it. And I learned a lot about that because I think that is, um, uh, if you're going to be publishing, and I'll be sure to link people to it. But um, it's, you know, how do we evaluate the uh, the personalities of the artists who have defined our culture? Do we look back at them through rose-colored glasses to sort of lionize them. Uh, and I forget all the terms. Do we look back with an intent to tear them down, which it seems yeah. like there's a lot of it. How are they looking at themselves? I mean, the, evaluating the character of an artist after the fact can be very, very difficult because you don't want to undermine yeah. the way that people see the work and yet you want to tell the truth. And yet what is the truth and what do they think their truth is? It becomes, yeah. it becomes all very messy. It's like a, it's like a Pandora's box. You open it up. Yeah. And, and, if, <laughs> and if you're, if you're an artist too, reading that you, if you don't get the true perspective, it discourages you as well, you know, cause you're thinking, why hasn't this happened to me yet? You know, and then you start, so then you have to like put that in context. Okay. Well, they were going through all these. It's like, you know, like I, when I had to self-publish content, I got very frustrated because I'm like, why is this like, I've like, I thought this should be published by a major publisher. This should be published by like Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux or something. <laughs> and the um, and they should be excerpts published in the New Yorker. And but then, and because you think of all the great artists, all the great writers that went before you, and they were they were published. Then, but then once you start diving and you learn that, well, you know, Kierkegaard self-published all of his books. Nietzsche self-published all his books. Of course, they're philosophers. They're not fiction writers, but like, you know, uh, Dostoevsky went through quite it. Like he wrote the gamble. He wrote um, the gambler in crime and punishment because he had a, he had a debt that he had to pay off to a publisher. And he <laughs> said that, you know, if you don't get these, if you don't give them to me now, I'm going to call in your loan and I'm going to own the rights to all your work. So that's when he had to hire a typist to, uh, to write up both novels for him to get them out in expedited pace. And that ended up becoming his wife. <laughs> and the, um, so stories like so, like once you learn stories like that, then you realize you can start also identifying with them as as people. It's like okay, they've gone through some same struggles I've gone through. Yeah, yeah, they don't need to be perfect people either. Exactly, exactly. They don't need to be perfect. And in fact, the less perfect they are, the better it is for you as an artist to know that, mm-hmm. because then you don't feel as inadequate, right? And therefore, you you can then go forward knowing, okay, I'm 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 you know, like it's like it's good knowing that. There's nothing new going on here, you know. They're like, okay, this is this is a common struggle. So mm-hmm. that can that can be heartening as well, knowing that oh, there's other people. It was the same for them as it was for me. In fact, their situation might even be worse than mine. In some ways, yeah. Perfection, yeah. perfection's not yeah. progress is. Yeah, I'm aware that uh, that you're 
that you've got some time commitments to, to keep to, but I, I just I wanted to know if there's anything you'd like to add to everything that we've gone through but this has been an incredible journey of a conversation symphonic in its scope and it's so it's so rewarding to me to be able to talk about many of these issues that i that i live in and think about all the time because like you i am always thinking and i just can't seem to shut this damn thing off so I'm <laughs> to, uh, to talk about these things i please read content it's available on amazon.com um so I'll just, how about I close with a quote from St. Augustine? Because uh, I know we were going to talk about this. That will be the greatest way to close a podcast. Okay. Things which are not in their intended position are restless. Once they are in their ordered position, they are at rest. Beautiful. That's, I'll be thinking about that for the day. All right. Great. Thank you so much, Matt. This has been outstanding. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad it was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And, and where can people go to find out more about you and what you do? They can, they can find, uh, they, they can, uh, of course, content is on Amazon. Uh, you can also go to uh, Punch Riot, www.punchriot.com or Punch Riot at Punch Riot Mag on Twitter, where uh, I have a weekly call, a monthly column called The Lost Highway, where I just write about just cultural issues, movies, stuff like that. Just, just stuff that's on my mind, I guess, on just observations. It's not, it's not really topical, but it's, it's just, you know, just my cultural impressions. Um, and then also my Twitter account at the MT white. Well, I'll be sure to send people your way and I will second that everyone should read content. It has a lot to say. That's very relevant about today. Yeah. And if you like content, please leave a review because I care what you think. <laughs> Lawless. <laughs> Lawless. Okay. I look forward to talking again, Matt. This has been great. Thanks, Ed. Have a great day. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Will. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.